This is The Neutral Position, hosted by Nick Palmisciano. Bringing honesty and reason back into conversation. Here's your host, Nick Palmisciano. Hey guys, welcome to The Neutral Position. It is an honor to have legendary Night Stalker, Alan Mac Daddy Mac on today. I don't know if he's ever been called that before. I'm just assuming he has because it is the <laughs> most basic possible nickname. Yes. Thanks so much for being on and tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And uh, it was a pleasure getting from New York down to here. Um, so I was an Army uh, helicopter pilot. I served uh, a little over 35 years, 35 years, 11 months. That's a long time. If you're counting. That's yeah. like one and a half Julius. But, you know, it was really two careers because I did nine years enlisted as an aircraft mechanic before I went to flight school. So it's, you know, just so completely different that it's like two separate careers. What made you make that decision? Uh, it's Well, it started with the Be All You Can Be commercials in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there was a couple of helicopter ones that I really enjoyed. And uh, also the Vietnam War was toward the end. Right? It was on the evening news every night. And you always saw a Huey flying by, you know, and I was like, that's what I want to do. And uh, so when I came time to, you know, go to college, uh, I decided I would be too much of a partier. And uh, a friend of mine had been to the Army recruiter. So I was like, you know, I think I'd like to fly helicopters, right? So they say you can do it right out of high school. So I go to the recruiter. I'm like, hey, um, I want to fly helicopters. He's like, well, pump the brakes turbo. It doesn't work that way. I'm like, I saw the commercial. It does. I saw the Huey. I know you have helicopters. Yeah. And he goes, uh, look, join as an aircraft mechanic learn the lingo, the culture, you know, learn some things, grow up a little bit, and then put in. He says, much easier to get in. Now, what I didn't know is he he didn't he, get credit for warrant officers, yeah. but he did get credit for enlisted guys. Yeah. But it, it turned out it was good advice. Was any part of what he was telling you true? Or yeah. Was it, okay, yeah. okay. No, so it was. wasn't like a straight-up lie. No, no, no. It, okay. it definitely right. was uh, tilted in his favor. Yeah. But it worked to my benefit. So, so what year did you enter the military? 1980. That is, that is wild. Yeah. That's wild. 1980. Yeah. Hollywood had already left the military, you know, what, 40, 50 years prior to that? That's true. I haven't, I haven't done it in a while. I, I haven't I, done I, it in a while. I missed it, bro. <laughs> I just called you up when you were in Florida. Like, hey, man, I'm feeling kind of young. I'm feeling young. Can you, uh, can you make me? So dead center in the middle of the Cold War. Yeah. So we actually we haven't had anybody on to talk about that. So before we get into all the cool, crazy stuff that you did, Cold War like prime cold war rocky four is going to come out in a couple of years what was it like to be in the united states military during that period of time yeah you know that's a good that's a good question because yeah, that's what, there's that's what i bring to the table that's what you do good questions <laughs> so there's two things right so i'll tell you first about korea right mm -hmm. south korea uh I hear that place has soul it does have soul. <laughs> soul it does <laughs> and uh it better now than it was what i'm going to tell you so in the late 70s their president was assassinated right and it and the country was run by a military junta and when i was there in 1982 um, every major intersection in the, in the towns and cities had military at checkpoints right? hmm. there was no police it was all military right and you could not have a personal car it was all cabs you had green really? cabs and yellow cabs right one was run on propane that was gas and that was it, right? So then... Was there a status associated with either one? Like you had to... No, no, it's just one it's just, was... Yeah. It's, it's a cab. Interesting. And, you know, as a young enlisted guy, all we did was go down to the Ville and party, right? Yep. But with that being said, 
uh, I go back as a pilot in 94, right? So the Olympics had already happened mm -hmm. in 88, I think it was. And they now had a, a civilian government. They were no longer military junta. And the difference was amazing. You no longer had military checkpoints. It was police officers. You know, people had private cars, which the infrastructure couldn't handle, you know, because all of a sudden everybody just could have cars, you know. Yep. And a 40-minute to Seoul from Osan, you know, turned out to be a you know, four or five-hour trip. Just because the roads were so yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm sure they've improved a little bit. But it was really nice to see the change, you know, because – Back in the early days, everything was, you know, the the the, the rice paddies were all feces. You know, there was no trees because mm. the Japanese had basically deforested it in uh, World War II. And uh, they, they had a big Arbor Day was a big deal there. You know, the soldiers would go out and we'd all plant, really? plant trees. So here uh, I get to see, you know, several years later, these trees, the trees we that planted, you planted are that's, there. That's cool. So that's Korea. Now you go to Germany, right? So yeah. I was in West Germany in the 80s. Whereabouts? Uh, Mannheim. Okay. So right. before the wall came down. Yeah. And one of the cool things with that... What year was that? Uh, so 85 to 89 is when I was there. So during that period of time, I was... Uh, or for some of that period of time, I was in Italy. Oh, yeah? The beginning of that period. Yeah. Nice. As a kid. Um, we were... My dad, uh, as, a, as a GS guy, was in Naples. Mm. And so I flew uh, to Germany for... To, for uh, ear surgery that i ended up not having so just wanted to connect there did you go like uh, heidelberg or something like that i think we flew into berlin if i remember correctly i was little so oh, I, think, yeah. I think we flew into berlin i think that's where where the uh the ear doctor was oh, like, you know that could likely. do the but the, they were well, you like, know the, the the cool thing with berlin is that obviously you had the 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 berlin wall and checkpoint yeah. charlie right yeah. so you had to go there as a u.s soldier well any of the four major allied powers you could go into East Berlin, and um, you had to go through Checkpoint Charlie, right? So mm -hmm. to go th first, you had to go through Checkpoint Bravo, right? So Bravo is somewhere in East Germany there along the highway, and we rented a Winnebago. This was like stripes. I mean, we had the urban assault vehicle, yeah, yeah. and it was a it was a Mercedes, actually, but I'll call it a Winnebago. Yeah. And uh, me and a bunch of guys, I was an E6, and I was the senior guy, <laughs> and we drive in, and um, we got all kinds of, you know, pokey bait with us you know a little trade material you know insignia unit crest that kind yeah. of stuff and so of course we we pull up to the guard shack and there's this soviet soldier standing there right it wasn't even east german it was soviet and we're like holding stuff up in the window and he's like he's at attention he's shaking his head no and he kind of points up at a camera with his thumb we're like all right so we go in and uh we we turned out we had all of our meals in east berlin because it's still German food, still German yeah. beer. You're just yeah. on the other side of the wall. And we tried to talk some people into coming out with us. You know, they were like, uh -uh, not doing it. You know, because yeah, we're yeah. all drunk and we're like, oh, yeah. come on, yeah. you gotta be over back. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but it was a great time over there. And uh, I bought a couple of pellet rifles, of all things, in East Berlin, which was a big deal. But you couldn't get ammunition, couldn't get the pellets. So they'd, they'd sell you like a, a packet of like 50, you know, and that was it. And I was like, no, I want to buy more. And they're like, no, no, no. Then nobody else can have any because the shelves would go empty for yep. like a month, right? Yeah. And then they'd restock them. Yep, yep. And uh, so then on the way back out, it's like 2 in the morning, and we hit Checkpoint Bravo, and that same Soviet soldier is standing there, except he's got a big smile on his face, right? Because he remembers the Winnebago, Yeah. right? So he come up, and he, he grabs his belt buckle and just kind of flips it like that. And we're like, oh, he wants to trade, right? So yeah. we pull up, and he has to walk around the 
the thing to check on it. And yeah. one of the guys steps out with a, a BDU cap, right? Uh, yeah. And it's full of, you know, the rank yeah. insignia, yeah. all that kind of pins. And he hands back, you know, a little baggie full of full of stuff. So I've got this Soviet hat pin, you know, from the bus driver hat, you know, those big oversized yeah. you know, hats they wore. And uh, he goes back to his shack and he looks at what we gave him and he just smiles and gives us a thumbs up. <laughs> That's cool. That was pretty cool. That's really and then, cool. Then I go to flight school and the wall comes down. People, people forget, <laughs> like, you know, especially like now with everything that's going on, people forget that when you're talking about individual human beings, mm-hmm. we're all very much the same. You know, like, um, I, right after the, right after the end of, uh, of the Soviet Union, I went to Russia for a few months as part of the Eisenhower program. Mm. And that's where they exchange, you essentially exchange kids, you know, high school kids. Uh, or I think there's even a college version of it where you spend time and you, the whole intent from President Eisenhower was that you would see that if you meet individuals when you're young, before all the biases are put into you, mm. you'd be less likely to then later as a leader you know, drag people into war without thinking it through. And so, you know, I, I had a very positive experience in Russia uh, and, and Ukraine. And, um, and then in Kosovo, I had the first uh, shared mission with Russia since World War II. Wow. It was a, a checkpoint um, uh, right on the Serb border. And so, you know... I have like I've had these positive, you know, relationships with Russia. It doesn't change the fact that Russia's wrong now, yeah. but that's not on the individual Russian. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, well, can I, can I tell you a story? So, you abs- your so, story is going to be better than mine. I know. No, that. no, no. It's not. I know it's that. Not. You just want to. You well, just want to put me down you, on you my might, own. Show. You might like this. So we're uh, when I was in the 160th, we would do all of our training in real environments. Meaning, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to do desert mountain, you're going to yeah. go do your thing, right? So we're out in Albuquerque. And we're saying, before you keep going, yeah, tell everybody what the one sixtieth is and what a night stalker. Okay, is. don't let me forget story about the. I'm not going to let you forget. <laughs> we're going to come right back. All to right. It. So the one sixtieth Special Operations Julie, Aviation Regiment. it's your job Regiment. to make sure we don't forget. Okay. Right. Yeah. So the one sixtieth SOAR, right? Uh, Special Operations Aviation Regiment is the Army's only uh, Special Aviation Operations Unit. Anyway, it's. Uh, it works for all of the what we call customers, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Delta, Dev Group, uh, this regular SEALs, Green Berets, Rangers, and uh, we are their primary ride. We're the taxi drivers for all of the uh, pipe swingers. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's really cool about it is a volunteer unit, obviously, in a volunteer military, and it's, you know, selection. You have to go try out for them, they, uh, and they pick you or not. You have to have a certain level of exp- or not, uh, experience when you get there, you know, flight time, goggle experience, that kind of stuff. What what percentage of uh, of that is just craziness? So if it was like skill versus craziness ratio, what would you put it at? Uh, you know, it, it could go either way. It depends who the assessment people are, right? So okay. there's a little of both, and, and I'll tell you why. Because um, most of the Chinook pilots in the 160th, for example, are former operators. So they're typically rangers who got tired of wearing a rucksack. Really? And they go to flight school, and they, because of their background, they end up, you know, they, they will take them younger than if they were just a straight-up pilot. Like, I was just a regular pilot and an aircraft mechanic, so I had to have, you know, the full-blown, you know, 
at least 1500 hours, you know, 500 hours of goggles, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm. These guys have flight school time, you know, like 200 hours. And why, why is that? Because if you can take a small amount of guys that don't have a lot of experience in flying, and that's what we call monkey skills, right? We can teach a monkey to fly, right? So monkey skills, no big deal. But understanding the mission, right, understanding the concept of supporting the unit the way we do is very important. Gotcha. So the Rangers have that, you know, uh, you smash, Hulk smash, you know, kind of mindset. Yep. You know, we had SEALs come over. We had uh, a lot of Delta guys. You know, usually it's when they either get too senior and they don't get a key leadership position. They go, you know, I'll go fly helicopters. They don't want to be staff or, yeah. go, or got, go to the regular Right, military. or they blow out a knee or yeah, something. We had a lot yeah. of professional athletes, actually, that had injuries. We had a couple of Major League Baseball players. We had a football player played for the Giants. Uh, he was my combatives buddy. That's you know, tough. He had a neck like this. You That's know, we were tough. Doing like you know, brachial stuns That's and stuff. And when you have high level, I mean, just <laughs> when you have high level athletes, and even if they don't know anything, and you go and try to train, like you know, grappling with them, it's not that you can't like deal with it, but it is a different level of intensity that they bring just because they know how to use their body. Yeah, like, and they're good under pressure, they're which good is, on, yep, yep. is nice. Yeah. We had a guy. He he pitched for the uh, for the Astros, and uh, he joined the army right about the time dodgeball came out. <laughs> now this guy threw in the like hundred mile an hour yeah. fastball, yeah, right? Yeah. And he's throwing uh, you know ninety mile an hour dodgeball, knocking yeah. people out. It's like oh, ooh, <laughs> he can't play anymore. That was a, that was a classic movie. <laughs> yeah, that was what's that? Was definitely yeah. that was definitely an army uh, like pregame before you you know. Before you go out watching movie right there. Yeah. We used to watch uh, the Lonely Island stuff, you know, <laughs> Andy Samberg. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so um, we were going to get back, or you were going to tell your story now that we've uh, talked about oh, yeah, yeah. the night. Julia right. wasn't on that one. Well, she no, was supposed you said to. 116th, but I don't think you explained Night Stalker. Yeah. Okay. So. The Night Stalkers were invented, if you will, right after uh, Desert One. So that was uh, 1979, the Iranian hostage mm -hmm. crisis. So they put an ad hoc task force together uh, with the, you know, Delta Force was the assault force. You had the Air Force uh, with C-130s. And then the, um, the helicopters, originally, they wanted Chinooks. They thought that was the most appropriate for the mission. But because of OPSEC the blades on a Chinook don't fold like uh, a 53 do. Mm. And they were afraid that putting Chinooks on an aircraft carrier at the time would be a, a spike in OPSEC, right? So that people would know something's going on. So, I mean, they didn't think they could just fly on, you know, after they got out of sure. sight of land, you know. Yeah. But this is all stuff, you know, in the 80s, or 1980. And um, so the it's a utter failure, right? The helicopters uh, end up running into a C-130 that had fuel on it because they were refueling yep. Desert One. So they create the Task Force 160th, right, which is uh, elements of the 101st. There was a National Guard unit that had OH-6s from Vietnam, and they mixed us all together and make the one Task Force 160. And when the hostages were released, before they got to go after them, uh, the Army uh, Chief of Staff, I can't remember, might have been General Meyer, uh, said, you know what, we're going to keep this in place. This is a good thing. Right. So now you have these uh, these relationships, right, which is very important. Mm -hmm. You know, the 
which comes into into play later on. I'll tell you about you know uh, you you got a reputation with the customers, a good one. Yeah. You know, and and life is good. You get a bad one, and you know you don't last long it's in the organization. Tr- literally true in everything. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, and, and so that's what really it is. And uh, to this day, they fly three different airframes. They have Chinooks, which you can see on the on the book here. Right? It's a big, uh, you know. Uh, dumpster with two palm trees, you know, having sex, or the, <laughs> the SEALs call it the black school bus of death. Uh, but there's that. Then you have Blackhawks. You have an armed and an assault version. The armed version I love, it's called the DAP, uh, Direct Action Penetrator. And then you have the Little Birds, MH and AH-6, right? Uh, an assault version and an attack version. And there in Fort Campbell is where you have all of them. And then Savannah, Georgia, and Fort Lewis, Washington, there's Chinooks and Blackhawks. And that's the organization. And then what was your specialty inside of that? I, so I was an MH-47 pilot. Uh, we did what we call heavy assault, right? So in the conventional Army, Chinooks generally just fly cargo. In the 160th, we generally fly, you know, uh, special operators. And whether that's landing what we call to the X, which is on the objective next to the building, to the to the Y, which is within 300 meters, supposed to be outside of effective rifle range, and then offset, which is 300 meters to you know 10 kilometers away, and they walk in. And uh, so I was a flight lead. So I would be the guy that led those flights, planned the flights, and uh, it was a really good job. So here's the real question. Why is there no movie about you guys that isn't terrible? <laughs> Oh, Black Hawk Down wasn't too bad. You guys got shot down and then yeah. like a bunch of people. All right, died. all right. Well, the, what about Firebirds? <laughs> that was amazing. Firebirds, with Tom, Sean Young, and Tommy Lee Jones. You know, so oh, uh, Nick and Nick Cage, right? So fuck your, I am the greatest. That but, was horrible. So it was horrible. <laughs> so the only the only saving grace was that GI Jane came out at the same time frame, right? Oh, so that no one paid attention well, to Firebirds. No, they they did. The seals, anyway. So yeah. I'm in Kandahar with. That the, was a rough year for the seals. Oh, God. <laughs> I, I was so the seals were my customer one night. We're doing a mission, and we break an aircraft. We break two aircraft, and we're waiting to get them fixed. Right, and they're like, yeah. "Come on, let's just go." You know, and I'm like, no, we, hit, like, we hit we hit force. The and so they're like, "Oh, is this like Firebirds? We could watch that tonight." And I just <laughs> looked at the seals and I was like. Really? I just watched G.I. Jane last night. I don't think it's so bad. Like, you know, Screw you. <laughs> I can't so. believe you even mentioned Firebirds, Alan. Oh, it's a horrible movie. Yeah. I know. I know. Somebody should make a good Night Stalkers movie. They should. I mean, they should. There, there really needs to be one. That's not That's not a low-budget film. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Well, <laughs> that is a... Well, even, even we in... Tom uh, Cruise to do it. Even in Horse Soldiers <laughs> or uh, 12 Strong, yep. you know, the Chinook scenes, that was supported by the 160th, mm-hmm. but all of the really good scenes, I thought, were cut. So if you look in the deleted scenes, you see a lot more Chinook stuff. But Is uh, there a director's cut that has all of it in? No, not yet. Not yet. There should be. Got to make it happen. Yeah, I know. There should be a movie about this. Maybe Diesel Jack will make a movie. <laughs> I mean, I would love to do it, but we're probably talking. What do you think? What do you think the budget is on that guy? Oh, you think it's that big? I mean, because of all the flying, if yeah. make it realistic. We need, we need Tom Cruise to play you. That's what we need. Yep. Well, He needs to get on board with My him. wife says it has to be. After this, uh, <laughs> my wife says Miles Teller. Oh, yeah. Well, but he's got to have a. <laughs> but he, but he, not near handsome enough. <laughs> well, you know, you just got to grow a big mustache. Yep. I mean, I no longer have the mustache, but, uh, yep. you know, I was known for this big, bushy. 
mustache that the crew chief said told me how to fly yeah you know they said it would talk like zoiberg you know from uh futurama it'd be like uh, <laughs> well, mu you know. mustaches were big in the 80s like yeah. my, my dad's still sporting his uh his 80s mustache <laughs> yeah. he's just he's riding it out i would but it's all white now and yeah you know, i got you, you know. i got you i got you so. Get back all to right. russia back to russia oh yeah, yeah. see Thank Look you. Look at that. You're Look welcome. at that. My mom's going right. to be so happy. So we're talking about, you know, the uh, the relationships of people, yep. not necessarily Soviet Union or yeah. Russia, right? So we're out in Albuquerque doing our desert and mountain training. And we come back from a night flight, change clothes. We're going to go out. A friend of mine, the other flight lead, uh, we'll call him Arlo. Uh, we go out there and we're going to smoke a cigar and we've got a bottle of bourbon, right? So we're just going to enjoy the night. The students, you know, in the dust landings, you know, yeah. they kind of, yeah. All right, we survived. It's like teaching your teenager how to drive, but worse. And um, there's this big fat guy sitting at the pool in a Speedo, right? And he's just sitting there all night, right? And I think comfort with Speedo is directly proportional to weight. Like, the bigger you are, <laughs> the more you're like, you know, that Speedo's looking good, you know? I think so. I've never seen, like, outside of, like, Europe, like Italy or something. Saying, and in Europe. And, and well, outside of, like, Italy, I've never, or France, I've never seen... Well, thin he, dudes he was obviously speedos. you know european of some sort right yeah. so my buddy so arlo had um in between his time active and and now he was a contractor doing uh instruction he worked in uh kazakhstan teaching mm -hmm. you know flight over there so he spoke a little bit of russian so he walks up says something to him i don't know and it turns out the guy's locked out of his room but he doesn't know what to do so arlo takes him to the front desk in his speedo gets him a new key <laughs> He goes in, lets him in a room, which is right by the pool. Yeah. And uh, he comes out with a bottle of vodka, and he's now dressed in regular clothes. Yep. And, uh, you know, he, it's it's got like a wax seal on it. And this is real Russian yeah. vodka, right? Yeah. So he, he cuts it with a knife, and he pops the top off, and he plops on the table and goes like this, which means that bottle is going to be empty. You can't put the top back on, right? So like, ugh, right? So we, uh, we drink that bottle of vodka with him, yeah. and then he goes and gets another one. Oof. And we're like, oh, are we yeah. flying tomorrow? Nope, we're off. All right, let's do it, right? Sun's coming up and uh, just had a really good time with him. We ended up using some kind of translator app, you know, plus yeah. Arlo could speak a little bit. But he was just a lot of fun. And yeah. he, it turns out he was a, a, a Russian general. And they were there at Kirtland Air Force Base doing some type of, you know, uh, exchange program, you know, where they'd come learn you know, how, do the, how does the U.S. military do this kind of thing? Yeah. You know, obviously they didn't learn too much. <laughs> did, uh, I thought they did. Yeah, they did a poor they, they job learning. But anyway, he was, a lot of, he was a lot of fun, nice guy, you know, as a person. Yeah. So, and who knows what he was like, but that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like over and over again, you know, I'm sure you've been to even more places, but I've been to, uh, we're not, we're knocking on the door of like 50, 57 or 56, I, I don't know high number of countries mm -hmm. and like individual people are generally the same. Yeah. I mean, really like regardless of like religion or, you know, like any, like it's like, you know, people kind of, they want to do their thing. They want their family to be okay. They want, you know, like it's, 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 it's when you put people in groups that they get mm -hmm. stupid. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have not seen that rule broken yet. Unfortunately, we don't control we don't control the groups. We just do our best. So, um, so Cold War. You know, you you served throughout the entire Cold War. I mean, essentially, you know, um, 
and then Desert Storm kicks off. Yeah. How talk about that because I think a lot of people that are younger now don't remember you know that kind of Desert Storm kind of faded into um right it, you know, it, the, the background. Yeah, so I graduated flight school uh, I got a Chinook transition immediately, and I was lucky to get that because in those days, Chinook pilots were all older, you know, people who had been in Vietnam, and this mm -hmm. was like a reward was to fly the Chinook. Yeah. And But they were all retiring at the same time, just like the airlines now, right? So they said, all right, what are we going to do? We'll uh, take guys out of flight school, which was unheard of. So when I got to my unit right after that, there was only two W-1s, right? And in the Warrant Officer Corps, you have W-1 through 5, and uh, W1, we have him Woges, warrant officer, junior kind of thing. And I get there, and you're the guy that empties the trash and you know, stocks the fridge and all that kind of stuff. But in this case, Saddam had just invaded Kuwait, and we got notified. It was in the 18th Airborne Corps. Our headquarters was at Bragg. I was in Savannah, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And we got notified we were going to go for Desert Shield, which yep. is you know a defensive operation to keep Saddam the, the from coming precursor. into the king, yep. kingdom, right? So we... Uh, we, we fly up to Wilmington, North Carolina from Savannah, put our aircraft on a, a ship. They bubble wrap them, you know, and off they go. Right? It's going to be like a month, maybe two to get there. So we get to Saudi Arabia ahead of them. And um, what was interesting about it is, you know, we immediately started, as the forces rolled in, we started hauling cargo, ammunition, food, water, uh, tank transmissions, treads, you know, all that kind of stuff. And because... The flying was so severe, you know, the dust landings mm -hmm. and the dunes and stuff. The old guys didn't want to do it. These are guys that were in Vietnam. They're like, you know what? I don't want to do the, this crap again. Let the Woj go, right? So they just stuck me with an instructor, and I flew every mission you can think of. You know, I wasn't up in front. I was usually in the trailbird, just learning, you but know, still, and yeah, flying. Yeah. And that's how I got, you know, so much uh, night vision goggle time right up front, which is interesting because – you got to put Desert Storm and Desert Shield in perspective in that at the time, the Army would say, we own the night. Well, we didn't. We kind of... <laughs> we, we borrowed the night. We rented it. <laughs> you know, that's what we used to say. Because, you know, guys would go out to the National Training Center, Fort Irwin, California, and they'd fly at night, and it's you know, in the desert, right? But it's a different kind of desert. Everybody thinks one desert is the same as the next, and they are not, as you know. So Fort Irwin is like scrubby rock... You know, there's a lot of definition, and you can see that with night vision goggles. Mm -hmm. You go to Saudi Arabia, and it's these smooth dunes, right? You know, like you see in Lawrence of Arabia, and you can't see the differences in elevation. And one of the problems they had there was, you know, the dune would come up, and you'd see that, but then there'd be a secondary lip that was in the shadow, and you didn't see that. And helicopters were running into that top lip because guys were trying to fly low, and they thought they were flying low over the first thing, and they'd hit the second. And so we had Hueys over there, a couple of aircraft. Nobody died, but they damaged a lot of aircraft, landing mm -hmm. gear and skids. So so you flying NVGs only? Because there was no TFR on those planes, right? At night, right. Yep. And and the Hueys didn't have a radar altimeter. Tell everybody Hollywood just yelling pilot. He's a pilot. You should know that. Yeah, yeah. So he's yelling pilot stuff in the background. So talk about what, what he just said. Yeah, so the... In the 160th, the special, so the MH-47, right, uh, every Army helicopter has a designation, UH for utility, CH for cargo, AH for attack. And in the 160th, they're all MHs, meaning they're modified helicopters. 
and the Chinooks. Very you know, nebulous. Yeah. Right. You, you know, very gray. Now I, I'm modified how? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> You know, <laughs> and sometimes you know we yeah. don't know <laughs> because they give you they give you equipment, and the the procurement works so fast in development. Sometimes they'd give you a piece of equipment, and there'd be no instructions. They wouldn't tell you what it is. And be like, no, you'd yeah. be like, all right, there's the radar. How do I work it? Yeah. Uh, we don't know. You know, yeah. here here, you know, eventually they'd give you, you figure the, it out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you and unfortunately, uh, the 160th is the innovators for night vision flying or flying at night anyway and there's a memorial wall at the regiment i don't remember how many names are on it i should know but uh there's a lot and most of them come from aircraft crashes in learning how to fly really with night vision goggles right so you know things like wires across rivers and things like that mm. so there's an organization in the 160th called simo systems integration maintenance office and they are like the skunk works on, on a minor scale right so they would do things like well, how can we fly at night safer? So they'd come up with things like a terrain falling radar. So there were aircraft out there, the the, the B-1, uh, I think the F-16 had a lantern uh, radar, which is what they modified for the Chinook. And you could MC fly. MC-130s, you have the Talons, had those. And the, uh, the idea is you can fly at 100, 300, or 500 feet above the terrain without being able to see out the window. Right. And so that was a, a progression, an evolution in night flying. And in Desert Storm, Desert Shield, we didn't have that, especially in the conventional forces. So what we did is they set a hard deck. They said you could fly no lower than 150 feet. Right. And okay. nowadays you set what we call bitch and Betty. You know, it's a uh, because she'll bitch at you. Altitude low, altitude low. And, uh, you know, and if you ignore her, she gets louder. Right. Uh, so what we did is we put a guy in the jump seat. So the jump seat, you have two pilots, and just behind and between them is uh, what we call the troop commander seat on the jump seat. And there would be a third pilot there, and he would just watch the radar altimeter. And if you got below 150, he'd squawk at you, you know, hey, come up, come up, you're too low. Uh, but during once we, the hostilities kicked off, we didn't have enough pilots to do that. So everybody had to just suck it up and not crash. But... Uh, you know, dust landings were terrible. We didn't have any way of seeing out the window because the dust comes up in this big yep. cloud, right? Yep. And the conventional Chinooks, even the special operations Chinooks at the time, didn't have what we call hover symbology, which is a little video game you play to keep the aircraft doing what you want it to do when you can't see out the window. And, uh, you know, you'd land in the dust. Now, this is what happened in Desert One. You know, the, uh, the helicopter pilots couldn't see in the dust and they had uh, uh, the load master from the C-130s were out there with the lighted wands like you see at the airport and they're, you know, ground guy come up, you know, go this way. And then the guy stuck them in his back pocket, didn't realize they were still on and walked up the ramp of the C-130 and the helicopter pilot just followed the wands and that's how they Because there was, there was dust kicked up. Oh yeah. And they couldn't see so you lost the visual reference. Right. And that's why it's hard to hover before the hover page came up, yep. you're trying to hover visually, you lose your visual cues, and now you're drifting and you don't even realize it because you can't, right. you have no ground reference. Right. And we get it, Hollywood, you're a pilot. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm it's, just it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard. It is. Yeah. I don't know how the helicopter guys do We it. should change the show to the neutral position with Hollywood Heard. Yeah, I, I, 
<laughs> I'm just I'm just messing with you, man. I'm just messing with you, man. <laughs> I tried to. I just you're just you're with, just with, with, in a clear blue sky and couldn't do it. <laughs> I can't imagine doing it in the dark. You're you're just so excited about this because we got a pilot on. You know, sure. you're all you're all fired up. Yeah, well, what he did, what he what he did is, it's it's black magic. It's unbelievable what these guys. But we do. call it PFM, pure freaking magic. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it clean. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's usually the other word. But uh, so the, the I tell you the shortcomings, because when Desert Storm ended, you know, we had 100 hours of actual conflict, which was pretty darn quick. Yep. And uh, when we came back to the States, the Army was like, all right, we will own the night, right? Even the conventional forces. So everything we did, whether it was. Or at least lease it. You know, we're going from a it's a, lend, from a rental it's agreement it, like to like a, a long term rent lease. To, rent to own. Yeah, really is what it <laughs> yeah. is. And they um, every big exercise you did, they wanted goggle crews, right? So out of a sixteen ship company, we only had six crews that could fly goggles. Everybody else sort of didn't maintain currency; they just were qualified in it. But once again, it's these old guys; they didn't want to do it, yeah. and they'll let the younger guys do it. And I didn't know any better, and quite frankly, I was having fun. So. That's how I got all my goggle time was everywhere we went, and it did improve. I mean, uh, you know, the goggles improved themselves. You know, uh, I think the original goggles we had were 2050 visual acuity, which is terrible, right? Mm -hmm. Although unaided flight's 2200, so it's virtually blind. And they just got better and better and better. And then I went off to Korea, did an assignment as a unit trainer. We fly the, the border and uh, fly at night, all that kind of stuff. So that was po that was post desert storm. Post desert storm, and the army just made a big, big effort in flying at night. Before we leave desert storm, because mm -hmm. I talk about this all the time, how did it feel to execute that mission, especially on the heels of, um, uh, you know, Vietnam and the the things that that our military had kind of dealt with to have a mission like Desert Storm. It you... felt good. You know, it was, uh, well, first of all, we thought we were protecting the Saudi kingdom, uh, which felt good to keep Saddam out of there. And then to liberate Kuwait, you know, it felt good. You know I mean? These these assholes come in and tear that place up and they're shooting people against the wall and I mean, all the terrible things they did. And we drive them out of there. And then, as I've heard you say often, and then we left, yep. right? Which is kind of the, yep. you had an exit strategy, yep. right? Which uh, we see is kind of important. And uh, in yeah, contrast, I, I, we, we did a victory parade in D.C., right? Uh, Schwarzkopf and the group mm -hmm. come marching down, yeah. the, you know, the thing. I, I stood static display on the National Mall, you know, with a, with a Chinook, and uh, it felt really good, you know. And, you know, I, and you've heard me talk about it, but I, I really think that was like the dream team of leaders mm -hmm that had all learned the right lessons from Vietnam. You know, you had a president that was a veteran that mm -hmm. did not want a prolonged conflict that with that, without a end state, you had Colin Powell, you had Schwarzkopf, you know, like you mm -hmm. had a group of people that understood like, Hey, let's go. And they win. followed, I think it was called the Weinberger doc doctrine, mm -hmm. right? Under Reagan, Casper Weinberger came up with the, like four key things you into, but the yep. big thing was you had to have an exit strategy, mm -hmm. you know, which is funny because, so I work in uh, public safety now, you know, with the emergency services. And one of the, the tenants of that is when you uh, 
the, when, when something happens, a disaster, and you mobilize, one of the very first things that you start to do is planning to, demo, to demobilize. You already are planning your, how are we going to get out of this? So you're responding to it, but at the same time, you're trying to figure what's the end state. Yeah. How, you know? how do we hand this off? Right. And, and uh, combat should be the same way. You, yep. You've got to have, all right, here's the end state. You know, I'm skipping ahead here, but, you know, in 2001, when we went uh, to Uzbekistan and then Afghanistan, we always thought we were going to be home by November. And it wasn't until you know, yeah, we nobody really, expected it. No. Like twenty years. I mean, our organization isn't meant for long-term deployments. It's go strike somebody yep. and come home and get yep. ready for the next one. And in this case, it just went on and on and on. And we always thought, you know, we were going to get uh, Bin Laden, which we can talk about later. But which is why I stayed, you know, doing it so long, is we always thought we were going to get that bastard. But uh, yeah, yeah. Do um do helicopter pilots have call signs? Some, some do. Well, Razor oh. Zero Three <laughs> okay. is uh, in the beginning of the war. You had to have, you know, a call sign, right? So they give you a computer-generated sheet of all these call signs, and you get to pick, right? So we're sitting in there, and as we're going down, uh, ooh, Razor, that sounds cool, right? So we pick Razor for us, and our DAPs, the you know the the actual cool guys, you know, the armed. Blackhawk guys were not in the room, so we picked Sponge for them. <laughs> right? And so they come in and they're like, hey, did you guys pick the call sign? Like, yeah, yeah, they gave them to us. You know, yeah, we didn't, they, say they, we we didn't get to pick. They it's just like, gave them to we're, us. Uh, we're Razors uh, one through four. And they're you're, like, uh, well, what are we? I'm like, Sponge one you're, through you're, three. You're Mr. Pink. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's just like, they're like, well, how, how come I can't be like, you know, Crusher or something? Well, it's already taken. Uh, There's yeah, a guy yeah, in look, Kuwait called yeah, Crusher. You know? Yeah, you're, you're Sponge. <laughs> yeah. So, and and the who reason puts, they did it. Who put Sponge on the list? <laughs> well, it's just computer generated. These are, uh, yeah. they call them VCSLs, variable call signs. Yeah, but still. I mean, like, I feel like some even the, though the computer generated it, you can be like, eh, let's, let's remove well, Sponge. Well, and some of them aren't even phonetically pronounceable. You know, like you'd get one and it was like, I can't even use that. Right. So I would use, uh, in later years, I picked up the nickname Cougar from uh, the movie Top Gun. Yeah, you know, he, I've heard of it. The guy that freaked out, you know, he's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, he, he, turned, he turned in his wings, you know. <laughs> so I had moved up from a different job and the crew chiefs were making yep. fun How of me. How do you like, feel about Cougar? Let's like, let's get a real pilot's perspective. <laughs> like, Well, first of all, anybody puts a picture of their loved one in the dashboard. That's, that's crazy, out. right? Yeah, yeah, that's a movie thing that like I, I don't I've never seen anybody actually I did see one guy do that in uh, Desert I've seen Storm. people put him in the in the hat. Yeah. In the hat. I didn't want anything personal on me. You just want it to be all all yeah. Well we were you know, especially when we went over in the beginning uh of the GWAT, you know, we went completely sterile. So there was nothing on us that, you know, indicated really we, who we, we were, were kind yeah. of stuff. And then it morphed a little bit. But you know, I talk about in the book uh which by the way this book is not just sitting here, you know, for no reason. Alan wrote this book and it's crushing it. And, and he, it's good. And he did that without a large publisher. He's got he's got a, a a cool indie publisher that's that's doing a great job with him, but he's he has sold over ten thousand books already. You guys should check this out. It is wild. It's a wild ride. Uh, and now back to you, Alan. All right. Thank you for the commercial. That's awesome. Okay. Uh yeah, Diesel Jack Media. Right. Thanks, man. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Hyping up the book. Look at that. I appreciate it. And what was I saying? <laughs> See that? That right there, what just happened was the the uh, the Predator handshake. That's what we it's just a, did. 
just it's a little bit of symbiosis there right but uh, i forgot what i was saying um Um, people some people put their pictures oh yeah yeah, yeah. so uh you know one of the crew chiefs uh on operation anaconda you know so we had razors one through seven by then right so Mm -hmm. i was the lead element of two razor three and razor four and then razor one and razor two were the quick reaction force with the rangers my job in anaconda was uh the hvt guy if you will so i had a high value target so the reason they even did Anaconda was they thought uh, Zawahiri and bin Laden had come back into the country and they were in the Gardez area. So they planned this big operation and uh, it was a conventional forces. But once they decided that bin Laden might be there, they added us. Mm-hmm. So I had a, a SEAL Team 6 element as my, we we're going to go schwack him if he popped up. And uh, Razor 01 and 02 were the QRF, the quick reaction force. So if if I launched and got in trouble, they would come save me kind of thing. And then the other Razors were doing some stuff to help uh, put special forces teams on the mountaintops to look down in the valley and call for fire. And um, the uh, I forgot where I was even going with that. That's what happens when you expand too much, <laughs> you know. But uh, we do that. We try to make we try to make guests forget things. So, oh, and I'm terrible. So that we just like you know, kind as of I get a little float, older, float through. Yeah. You know, and Quigley's supposed to keep people on target, but uh, <laughs> as you can tell, she's not great at her job. <laughs> yeah, but we were talking about the call signs, I think, really. Right? Yeah, uh, we uh, Nick asked about um, what you think of Cougar. And yeah, we were talking, talking about, about Cougar. Cougar. Yeah. So I ended up using it after that, but it was... Uh, but let me put it a different way. Yeah. Assessing the Top Gun pilots, right. best to worst, and, you know, just the ones you can remember. Oh, well. Who is who is start with the worst? Who's the worst pilot? Oh, Cougar. Cougar's the worst. Oh yeah, I mean he flipped out because the guy got close to him. Okay, you know. Cougar is the worst. Yeah. All right, then who? Well, you know, Hollywood. Right? <laughs> or was he? Or was he? Where did he go? Where did he go? Which reminds me, you know, every time I think of that, I think of uh, 1941 with the Japanese submarine. Oh, yeah. Go, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to make these radios smaller. All right, so so Cougar, Hollywood, then who? Oh, we don't have to remember all of them. I don't remember Let's, the other names. You know, there's got, uh, got, you know, well, we there's big Wolf guy, Man. little guy. Are we only doing the original Top Gun? Or are we including? No, the, we get we include the new everybody one too. Yeah. Okay. All I right. mean, Iceman was good, but you know, he wasn't flexible enough. That's the problem. You said, so so you 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 think Iceman? wasn't the best no because there's an argument to be made that he was the i best think he pilot. was technically the better pilot but you know he had ice ice water in his veins right ice yeah. man but uh sometimes you got to have a little you know a little spunk in you you, 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 know? you need to do something a little crazy yeah so i mean who's, that's who's, that's the kind of thing that that i, I look at with uh, being a flight lead in the 160 there's only very few of us and you know i joke that i'm the best of them I wasn't, but uh, I was definitely the probably the most aggressive of the 47 flight leads. And that's why, you know, I, I would come overseas and the customers would be waiting for me. Meaning the supported unit, they'd be like, Al, we're waiting for you. We get some missions. I'm like, great, you know. But it's because I would do things kind of a little, you know, more like Maverick, if you yeah. will. So do you think Maverick is the best pilot? Mm, all right, we'll say yes. Say yes. Yes. So here's here's. I mean, my he did question. get that F-14 off the ground. Which well, I know when I saw that. I mean, like even watching it, I was like, 
rolling my eyes. Like, this is so ridiculous, but also I still loved it. Right. Mav, like, why I, are the wings? Why are the I, wings coming out? I loved <laughs> Top Gun Maverick because it reminded me of an 80s movie. Yeah. It, and then, like, I am so tired of being depressed by movies or being lectured, or, yeah, being lectured yeah. in movies. It like, was fun. I mean, it was I just, just a fun movie. I want to be entertained. Yeah. You know? Although he could have put the flaps down that day. So, now, right? so here's a question. I know that I know naval aviators are are a different kind of weird, but how how accurately do you think that they portrayed pilot tude? Uh, there's some artistic license there, obviously. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to demonstrate attitude, right? And I used to I hated this in um, Black Hawk Down. So they're flying the quick reaction force standby. They're up and down the coast, and they're joking on the radio about uh, Scrabble, right? And I'm thinking, there's no Night Stalker bullshitting on the radio. That's right. They just don't. That's right. It's quiet, right? But yeah. you have to portray that, you know, things are easy going. They're, you know, nobody's scared. Yeah. But, you know, but it's too hokey. But that's just how you got to yeah, show it, it makes you roll your eyes. Yeah. But to the average person. Yeah. Because if you watch a movie, it, there was one... Um, about landing on the moon. I can't remember the name of it, but it was super realistic. It was boring as shit. Yeah, you know, I know. Because exactly it was literally... This was the one with Ryan Gosling? Yeah. 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 But it was... It's you know, terrible that we can't remember the name. But, but I know... That's yeah, why, because it was just like yeah. real. You know, you had to, you have to have a little bit of yeah. oomph to the story. Yeah. So portraying it... Like, I was talking to Jerry Bruckheimer after... Um, we were at the premiere for 12 Strong. And so they did an icebreaker with us and the actors. And, you know, Jerry was there. And I said, hey, I hope you did us right with the helicopters. I said, because every movie I've ever seen, you know, The Rock, White House Down, and stuff mm -hmm. like that, is every time, you know, here comes this badass uh, special operations helicopter. And they're talking cool. And we're going dark, you know. And then the first bullet comes their way. And they free. We're getting shot at. And they're running to each other. And they all die. <laughs> I was like, that's not how it works. I said, we'll just sit there and take the shots and maybe evade it if we can, but the voice, the octaves in your voice never go up, you know? And so once again, how do you portray that? Yep. Uh, it's not yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah right? Because people, people want to see how they'd react. Yeah. They like I flew uh, general Franks into the U S embassy when we got it back in Kabul. Right. So this is still 2001. Mm -hmm. I got general Franks, his wife, bunch of strap hangers, general Harrell in the back. And it's a daytime flight, and I did not want to do this. I'm like, we can't go taking the general into the embassy into Kabul in daylight. We are going to get shot down. And the staff from CENTCOM, the Central Command, is like, no, 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 the Taliban is gone. Yeah. I'm like, no, I get shot at every time I leave the wire. And I'm yeah. not talking little shit. It's, yeah. it's you know, 23-millimeter yeah. man pads. We had 16 man pads fired at us in the first, like, six months. Wow. That's a lot. And so one is a lot, but off we go. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, so off we go and they're all on headset, right? Yeah. So they can hear us talking and uh, you know, we're giving them a little bit of a ride, you know, down and all of a sudden the flares deploy the countermeasures. So a heat seeking missile has been detected. The aircraft fires these flares automatically because it happens so fast. You can't do it. You can't, you can't do it manually. It's not like missile two o'clock evading. It's like, yeah, whew, it goes by and you go, what was that? Right, and so the so flares. You're saying that part of Top Gun isn't real. <laughs> no, but once again, it looks cool, right? <laughs> it you know? does. They're dodging Deploy missiles. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, the missile goes between me and um, and Chalk Two, 
And uh, so now I really drop down and I'm getting into every little ditch and swale and trying to block, you know, a good effective lock from yeah. the next missile. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking, I speed up now almost 200 miles an hour, which is fast for a helicopter. I come whipping into the embassy, drop them in, and then I take off and uh, another missile comes at me. So now I drop down and this is over Kabul, right? You've, you've seen it, yeah. right? And there's, the you know. The Taliban's gone, <laughs> and uh, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> who shoot at me. I don't know who's got these missiles, <laughs> you know. But uh, so I drop down on the, you know, you got these uh, old-fashioned TV antennas and stuff. They're yeah. like, I'm ripping them off with my wheels, and but what's in front of me? Kites. There are kites everywhere, right? Because the Taliban had banned kites, right? So now here's kites everywhere. It was like barrage balloons on Omaha Beach, you know. So you, I'm like, oh my god, so I'm. Dodging zigzagging kites. out of the way, you're trying to avoid the kites. Why would, they, why would they ban kites? I don't know. There's yeah. like a whole book on that. Yeah, the kite oh, yeah, runner, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. they get I some. Yeah, I didn't yeah. read it. But, but they would right. use. Uh, Makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> they'd use fishing line, yeah. you know, because it wouldn't break, right? And the yeah. problem with that is if that guy's wrapped around the oh, rotor system, yeah, you yeah, could yeah. technically cut the, the tubes that, uh, that you know, control right. the blades. So I'm trying to avoid these, and there's this one red kite. I cannot avoid it. It's I'm going left. It's going left, right? It wrapped around the landing gear. That kid would not let go of that kite. He kept up for about a mile. And uh, you're dragging a kid? Well, a mile, well, it was like a half mile. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I did. I'm kidding, Nick. I'm kidding. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> so I get back. And uh, what's funny though is my my wingman is he's Puerto Rican, right, Willie. And he's got a very thick accent, and he's hilarious. He always plays up the accent, but when he gets excited, it really comes out, right? And so we land, and now we know we got to go back and get these guys, right? And I'm like, hey, we got to go back at night. And they're like, no, you're gonna go back and get them in an hour. I'm like, we won't survive if we go back. The staff really is like, you have to go get them in an hour. Yeah. Was this a major or a colonel? I would bet. What are the two worst colored ranks in the military? They're all, they're both gold. Major and major. Major, well, major <laughs> and first, uh, second lieutenant. Are there's like, no way a second lieutenant was telling No, 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 me. I'm just saying yeah, that, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a saying yeah. that, you know, because my son's in the in the Navy, and, and he's now lieutenant commander, and he's, like, doing these jobs he even, doesn't like. Even majors hate majors. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What's up with that? You just get rid of but it. This is my, it's, it's, it's pure theory, but, like. there's good majors, and then there's staff majors. I don't know, man. Like, like, major, it's just, so what happens is, like, you have like the beginning of your career is is cool. You know, it's like you're a platoon leader, right? Then you're a company commander. There's a little staff in between, but like you basically platoon leader, a little staff, company commander, cool jobs. <laughs> and then like eight years, 10 years of like. That's why I want of being a so bit, cool. Of being a bitch for a colonel or a general. That's like yeah. major. And so you just get bitter. They're all bitter. Yeah, there's then, a lot of RLOs, we call them uh, real life officer versus a warrant officer, revert, they'll resign their commission and take a commission as a warrant officer. I don't, I don't blame them. And you get a yeah. lot of those. If you like flying, right? Yeah. Like if you, you know. Yeah. And, no one, and, and even though a captain and a major's higher than a warrant officer, you guys really don't give a fuck. True. Uh, and uh, and the like, one. Okay. Yeah. You're a major. I'm a warrant officer. Well, the cool thing, well, yeah. It's true. And the you know the the cool thing with the 160th is it's warrant officer centric. 
like the very first mission they were going to do as an organization was called Honey Badger, right? And that was which is a great, isn't it? It's a great it <laughs> anyway, uh, they're they're doing a rehearsal, and the chief of staff of the uh, army, I think it was, or maybe the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, is witnessing this thing, right? So they're they do the the first thing, and they he comes up and they're doing an after action, and this major is doing the thing, and he goes, uh, Major, why are you leading this flight? He goes, Well, because I'm the senior guy. And there's a W-4, CW-4 there who'd been to Vietnam and all this stuff. And he goes, why isn't he leading the flight? You know, and they talk a little bit. And from right there, the 160th put the warrant officer flight lead program together. And so the warrant officers, so essentially the commander will give you a mission and commander's intent. Yeah. He may give you left and right limits or he might not. But the warrant, you know, basically this relationship is there anyway. And the warrant officers, it's the lunatics run the asylum. You know, essentially. So warrant officers in the 160 flight leads in particular have a lot of say in how things yeah. are done. Well, the military used to have a specialist program. Like right. Not everyone had to become a leader. Yeah. I was a spec five at one time. There you go. Yeah. You know, so I think it went up to what? Spec eight, I think was. The, it did. Yeah. You know, and what that allowed for people that are not military and have no idea what we're talking about is, is right now the military is an upper out situation unless you're a warrant right? right warrant is kind of the only place where there's you know there's five ranks and if you be if you become a, a mythical uh cw5 the unicorn as they say uh then then at that point you actually get the ability to disappear entirely you you become ethereal and no one can find you anymore but other than other than the warrant officer core it's up or out so if you don't get promoted even if you're great at your job you're gone. And, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, and I, I witnessed this. There are a lot of people that are, for example, phenomenal gunners, you know, uh, great at calling for fire, great mm -hmm. at like, like, and they love it. Right. But they can't stay there. They have right. to. They get promoted out of their skill. They level. get promoted out of their skill and then they're, then they're not good. Yeah. And so, you know, there is a threat of like, leaders just deciding somebody that could be promoted can't be because of x y or z there's also the threat of and we've all seen this of a leader that like really values somebody but for selfish reasons and won't let them mm -hmm. but you know i feel like you should be able to self-select and say you know what i don't want to be well and some people are great technicians and they're terrible leaders yeah you know you got a guy that can fix a you know a, a tank or something and yeah. he can do it in half the time of everybody else but you make put him in charge and it's like yeah he's soup sandwich yeah keep paying more money but let him stay there like you know i mean that's the way it would work anywhere else but for whatever reason in the military it's like hey you're great at fixing this tank now you have to be in charge of 40 people well right. wait a second yeah, yeah. <laughs> wait a sec these are not necessarily the same skills it's not necessarily beneficial to the military to do that well, it's not beneficial to anybody it's not good for the person. It's not good for the military, you know. Which like, I have to, I'm sorry, I would have to point out, this is completely counter to the Ben Bunn theory of if you're not moving up, I'm are we, you. Are we quoting Ben Bunn? <laughs> are, ben we, are we quoting <laughs> Ben Bunn? I am. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, 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 I agree that there is a place for people that are job specific. And if they love that job, they don't have to continue to, to go up. I agree with that statement. Ben, we disagree with you. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about the Cold War. Talk about the transition. So, you know, Cold War, 
Desert Storm. You know, you got a ton of experience in Desert Storm. How'd you end up as a night stalker? We didn't talk about that. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. So you remember I said I went to Korea. I was I the did. so the opportunity to be an instructor pilot, which is the you know the top really. Uh, what do you guys call Top Gun? What do you what do you call your Top Gun? Like the the rotary Top Gun. There really isn't is it like one. middle gun. No. <laughs> no, you know what they do? We go to WTI, which is a Marine uh, school. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I don't Sorry. know. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. But uh, yeah, you don't really have a Top Gun program. But you have three tracks. You have an instructor pilot, safety officer, and maintenance officer. And you want one of these tracks if you want to move up. So instructor pilot. I like to fly, so I like to teach people how to fly, mm -hmm. and that's what I wanted to do. So in order to get it coming back from Korea, because so Korea is a one-year tour yep. un unaccompanied, and uh, one of the very senior pilots had some friends at Department of the Army, and he, he called and said, hey, we got a young CW2 here, really needs the instructor pilot course. You know, can you, can you hook him up, right? Because it's one of those things where, you know, you could end up the safety guy and everybody hates the safety guy. It's like, Oh, you, you've daisy chained your, your extension cords. That's dangerous. You know, that's what they do. Yeah. But anyway, I ended up, at Fort, terrible. I end up terrible, it honestly. is terrible. So I ended up at Fort Rucker, Alabama as an instructor. And so I'm teaching people how to fly Chinook. So they already know how to fly. They've gone through flight school mm -hmm. or they may have flown another airframe and I'm teaching them how to fly Chinooks. And what do they fly in flight school? Uh, I learned in the UH one Huey. Okay. And then, they transitioned to a TH-67, which is a, like a jet ranger. And they got rid of those just recently. Now they fly UH-72 Lakotas, which is an EC-145. A lot of um, air ambulance services yep. fly them. Yep. And West Point flies that, right? That's what they fly at West Point. Yep. Yep. And uh, so that's kind of what they, they do there. But So I'm teaching there. And as a young chief warrant officer, too, I was not ready to do that type of assignment. It's called a TDA assignment, right? It says T-O-N-E, right? So it just means there's no combat gear. You're not doing anything. You're not going anywhere. You're just doing, you're burning traffic circles the same hour at a time, right, mm -hmm. with, with guys. So if the students are fun, that's a good time. But I, uh, there was a National Guard unit in Birmingham that had traded in their CH-54 Sky Cranes, which was a cargo helicopter, an aging one, right? And they did not want to fly Chinooks, but they didn't have a choice because their unit was swapping out. So you got all these old guys that are coming in, and I'm a young guy. I'm in my 20s, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, they don't want to listen to me. And they didn't want to fly Chinooks. And they treated me like I made it happen. Imagine a media agency that can make a documentary that qualifies for Academy Award voting. Imagine another that created a billboard charting music video for Five for Fighting. Imagine another that has raised so much money for nonprofits in its first year working on the classy.org platform that at the end of the year, it was named as only the second marketing partner in Classy's history. Imagine another firm that can cover your events anywhere on planet Earth and provide a compelling series of videos about those events immediately and to your needs. And imagine another still that can help your e-commerce business take it to the next level. Now imagine that they're all the same business, Diesel Jack Media. Some of you might be saying, hey, Nick, isn't that your company? And to that I answer, can a company like Diesel Jack Media really be owned or can it 
merely be coaxed out like a beautiful butterfly on a spring day. As you listen to this podcast that, by the way, Diesel Jack Media created, you may be asking yourself, what's our secret? It's simple. We try not to suck. Sounds easy, right? It should be. But somehow, marketing companies and media agencies always seem to get it wrong. You see, we don't make PowerPoints about doing work. We do the work because we like the work. And if one of our ideas doesn't work, you know what we do? We try another one again and again and again until our ideas start to work. Because not quitting until it's right is at the heart of not sucking. And as previously mentioned, that's what we try not to do here. Diesel Jack Media, we try not to suck. Visit us at dieseljackmedia.com. That is dieseljackmedia.com. Like, yeah. like you created. Like I yeah. said, all like right, get those. Like the Army was like, hey, what do you think these guys should fly? Yeah. Chinooks. Right. <laughs> but thank you, Al. We appreciate that. And so anyway, uh, a buddy of mine who I'd gone through the instructor pilot course with was there for another school. And he's like, Al, you hate it here. Come to the 160th. You know, it's like, ah, I don't know. So it gives me a packet, right, uh, for, for selection. To fill out, yeah, yeah. And back then it was all, you know, stubby pencil. You know, there was no yep. laptops really. Yep. And uh, so I filled out a little at a time because I didn't yep. know if I really wanted to go. And I didn't think I was good enough yep. to get in. And so. But they didn't expect the graphite self-portrait in the nude. <laughs> that's what, that's what they were like. This is actually really good work. We need to talk to this guy. Well, you have to be endowed, you know. Well, <laughs> and then they'll you're like, "Hey, this guy's got he's got he's got a pair, so we could use him." So I filled it out. Didn't have any blanks left, so I mailed it in. And like two weeks later, the recruiter calls and says, "Hey, Mr. Mack, we'd like you to come assess." Okay, right. So um, up I go. You know, there's a whole. It's a week long uh, tryout essentially. And I get selected, and they're like, hey, well, about a year, right? Because, uh, you know, in order to let me go try out, I had to tell the command it would be about a year because they didn't want to lose me. Yeah. And, but so they didn't hate you. Even though you hated it, you were still like, did you? Oh, yeah. 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 I was, uh, that's great. Because I never, well, <laughs> we had guys that uh, they didn't want to fly, you know, so they'd find, you could always find a reason on what we call pre-flight, you know, pre-flight inspection, they'd always find, you know, an improper washer stack up or a safety wire. Instead of just having it repaired on the spot, they'd be, oh, I'm not taking this aircraft. It's unsafe. And they wouldn't fly, and their students These would fall behind. These are pilots that didn't want to fly? Yeah, there were. <laughs> that's and that's why, that's why some of them, that's why Fort Rucker gets a bad rap sometimes, is you've got guys like that there, yeah. you know, at least at the time. And uh, I would pick up their students, because my guys would get done ahead of schedule, and they'd be like, hey, Alan, you need to take so-and-so's students because they're, you know, 10 hours behind. And, and that's when they started calling you Mac Daddy or Daddy <laughs> Mac, depending on. It, I've had on all who, those. I've had all those, yeah. yeah. And uh, Mac the Knife? Is that I've, one? <laughs> I've had that one as well, yeah. <laughs> all right. But uh, so they, they called me up and said, hey, we'd like you to come, like, next month. And I'm like, I, <laughs> my, uh, my commander's not going to mm -hmm. like that. And they're like, well, it takes eight months to get a guy through the pipeline. Anyway, you got to come up. I'm like, okay, right? So uh, I went up there. The commander was not happy, but, you know, I got there. And uh, that's sort of how I got there. Cool. Very cool. So then, so what what time frame is this? So this is uh, 1995. Okay. Yeah. All right. So shortly after Black Hawk Down. Right. So 
you you came into the Night Stalkers right in the aftermath of Black Hawk Down. Right. Talk about the effect that that had on training and on outlook. And I have no idea what the answer is here, but I, I have spent a bunch of time with the Rangers that served there. And I know that, you know, Black Hawk Down had a profound effect on Rangers and Delta right. and and how they operated going forward. So yeah. how did that affect you guys? Well, uh, first of all, one of the things I could tell you, remember I said that a lot of the pilots in the 160s are former operators. Mm -hmm. Well, we had a couple of guys that were in Task Force Ranger mm -hmm. that were now Chinook pilots. A good friend of mine got shot in the butt cheek in that convoy, you know, back and forth. Wow. And uh, it affected us. One of the things it did is it improved weapons training. So at the time we had MP5s, right, as a as a primary weapon, yeah, which is useless in a in a yeah, in a yeah. in that kind of fight, yeah. And uh, but it looked cool, you know, it's silenced, you know, and uh, you know they changed to the M4, and then some of the weapons training improved, and some of the flight tactics changed. So in this case, you know, they they put the assault force in and they went into a wagon wheel. They just went around and around because what's cool about it is you can see what's going on and you can kind of time when you're going to go get fuel or, you know, if you've got to do something. And, of course, what happened is, you know, the RPGs came at them because it was very predictable. So becoming more unpredictable was one of the, the things that we started working on or they started before I got and there. And how, how does one do that, for example? Well, uh, one of the things that, that I like to say for me is that I am predictably unpredictable meaning you know I'm going to do something you don't expect, so you got to pay attention to me if you're following me. And overseas, the so the ground force would go for, like, say, six months. And the 160th guys, after a couple of years, we would go for, you know, 90 days or something like that at a time. You'd leave for a month and come back. So you'd have a different flight lead. And instead of intentionally trying to create new ways in and out of our bases – because how hard could it be? Oh, they're all taken off out of uh, Kabul, mm. right? We know they're coming in and out, so all you got to do is put your AAA or your man pads right there, and you know when they're, you know. So because each flight lead is different, and we're changing out every 60 to 90 days, just by virtue of personality and comfort level, you'll do something different. So just as the enemy is starting to get a feel for, oh, they always come out this way. Yeah. Well, guess what? Here's Al, and Al goes this way. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, they're waiting for me to change back, but I don't. And then the next guy comes in, and he likes to go that way. You know, and by the time you get here, they're all confused. And we always felt that was one of those things, you know, based on intel that, that was confusing the enemy. So that's one of the things that we did. Do you think that um, the negative things that happened in Black Hawk Down um, – saved lives long-term? Yeah. You know, a lot of the combat lifesaver program uh, improved, you know, um, trying to stay flying at night, although sometimes the situation drives a daylight mission, which in that case it did. But if you're going to do a daylight mission, you know, how do you make adjustments so the enemy does not have an advantage, right? Because the one thing with us fighting at night is we have all the advantage, you know, we've got aircraft that are very sophisticated and do some really cool things. Yep. 
night vision goggles. We're good at doing it. You use lasers and all these things that people can't see with the naked eye. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're just, we're good at it. And it's hard to see you if there's no moon or other artificial illumination. You go out in the daylight, you know, you lose half of those advantages and you've got to make up for them in other ways, you know, and sometimes you can't, you know. So like a, a quick reaction force mission, you are reacting solely to the enemy action, right? They now have the advantage because they know you're going to come, yep. right? So how do you, one of the things I learned from being shot down in Operation Anaconda was that I realized that after Razor Zero One got shot down coming to save me, that the enemy knows you're coming. So you can't just, like in the movies, just keep coming in with helicopters, you know, and, and everybody getting shot down because that's kind of what happened mm. in Anaconda. Everybody got a shot up because they, you know, were trying. They, they knew. They knew. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the old uh, movie deal where, you know, the sniper shoots one guy and everybody runs out trying to save him. Exactly. And the sniper shoots everybody. So, you know, like so in the ensuing years after Anaconda, one of the things that, and this is why it was good that I had a, a good reputation with the customers, is because when I told them something, they would listen, usually. And there's some times they didn't. Ex except for the majors. <laughs> yes, actually. But and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a funny story about the snow. But... Um, you know, I would make a point if something happened, especially a quick reaction force, to say, all right, where, where do you want to go, right? Because the it was typically Rangers. Mm -hmm. It could be could be SEALs, or a couple times it was Delta. And I'd say, well, what does it want to do? Well, the vehicle got ambushed here. Here's the guys. I want to go right here. I'm like, I highly recommend you don't do that. They're going to know we're coming there. How about we go over here on the other side of this hill? They'll see us come in, but they won't be able to shoot us while we land when we're vulnerable. And you can do your ground guy stuff and, you know, go shoot them. And they're like, yeah, but that's like another 300 meters. I'm like, well, you could be on the X and get shot down with them. Would you rather do that? No. You know, and, and then it became normal. You know, they people realized, okay, you can't just keep throwing helicopters yeah. at the enemy because they have all the advantage. So anyway, those are the things we learned really from, you know, uh, Mogadishu. And then it just continues to evolve, you know, over time. And that's why... It's so important that the 160th keeps their warrant officers as long as you want to stay and are productive. And that that uh, institutional knowledge travels with you, stays with you, stays with the organization. So it's very important. So, you know, jumping ahead, 9-11 um, happens. Mm -hmm. And you were involved in, you know, one of the first missions of that conflict. Yeah. you know, now referred to as the, you know, the horse soldier mission. And we all, you know, we all have that iconic photo, you know, of the SF guy on the, yeah. on, on horseback. And of course it's been, a, it's been a made a movie since. Which by the way, I really think Chris Hemsworth should have played me, <laughs> but you know, is he buff enough? That's the, that's <laughs> he's a little the real, too, he's a little too short. I thought he's, he's, so he's, we did the casting. I was like, know, Hey, Sorry, Chris, you're too you know, short. And and like the abs weren't quite yeah. there. You He's know? like this much taller than me. Yeah. <laughs> so um, talk about that because, you know, there is no human being that was in the military that did not want to be part. I mean, like it, I don't, it didn't matter if you were like a an admin clerk or, you know, Delta. Right. 
everybody wanted in at that moment, you know, like that it's, it's hard to describe to people that weren't in the military at the time. What and that, and what it's that also hard to was. describe to people who weren't old enough to watch people jumping yeah, out of those right. towers. That's right. Right. I yeah. was alive. I'm, What's well, that? I said I was alive. I wasn't alive you in were the like, 80s, you were but like, I'm alive but did now. You, you were like one, right? But did you watch it? One. I mean, a lot of... A lot of three? I was, I was in... Yeah. <laughs> three. You were three. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like... But I was there. So. But, you know, the thing is, you didn't... Thank you for your You support. didn't know that these people were jumping out of the buildings to not <laughs> no. get burned, right? No. She, she was like... <laughs> I do have a photo of myself in New York with the, with the towers before, which is crazy. Yeah, that Ground Zero uh, museum is nice. It's They're, really they've nice. done a really nice they've job. Done a, with yeah, it. they've done a beautiful job with that. But you know, think about where you were when that happened, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I was down at uh, JRTC, the Joint Readiness Training Center, Fort Polk, Louisiana, which is now renamed something. Um, awesome. I remember watching the you know the towers go down, and I had just this was like something out of a movie. I had just left the company as the senior pilot to become the battalion senior pilot, so now I was on staff essentially right and i'm thinking to myself i'm not going to get to go because i work for the colonel now not the the major mm-hmm. and turns out they needed another flight lead anyway so i was attached to them which you know what like you said you're always afraid you're going to miss the fight and so we get to uzbekistan shortly i mean we were down in tampa the next day we drove down 15 packs van a couple planners to sock special operations command central command and what I didn't know is the fifth group guys were in one room over and they never asked to talk to the helicopter guys, right? Because they still didn't really know what they were going to do, but they did kind of know they'd need helicopters. They just didn't understand the short, the, um, the difficulties of flying those distances in Afghanistan, you know, at those altitudes, yeah. right? So, which they find out when they finally got to Uzbekistan. But, um, so we're ready to go. And, uh, we were in Uzbekistan, which is just north of Afghanistan, uh, at a base called Karshi Kanabad, K2. And we've got four helicopters, four Chinooks. And our mission at the time is personnel recovery. So if one of the bombers goes down, you know, they're taking the fight to the Taliban so we can get to bin Laden, right, because they're protecting him. And our job is for somebody to have a bad day, we'll go get them. We'll rescue them. We don't know anything about what's called the UW campaign, uh, unconventional warfare. That's fifth group's mission, right? Green Berets, you know, core mission. So October 19th is the first mission we actually went in. Actually, it was two nights before that. Razor Zero One tried to go in uh, to the, uh, the Pancher Valley, right, with an ODA uh, called Triple Nickel, 555. Mm-hmm. And they get turned around because of the weather. They're at 23,000 feet or so in the in the snow and the rain. The radar doesn't have the performance up there. The aircraft doesn't have the performance to use the radar. So they're like just kind of inching their way up the mountains on oxygen. Doesn't work. They turn around, they come back. My mission now rolls 24 hours because they had to get in first because uh, a warlord named Fahim, who was their, uh, their guy in the Northern Alliance, said if we got them to dose them first, and that's the guy that ended up with the horse soldiers, he would attack dose them. Right, which is why this little rivalry is why the Al Qaeda killed uh, Masoud, because he was the leader of the uh, Northern Alliance. With him gone, they thought we couldn't coordinate the other warlords to make an effective fighting team, if you will. So anyway, they come back. I'm mad because now another 24 hours before I get to go in, and I'm afraid 
someone's going to, like the sec def is going to say, all right, this mission's let's, obviously let's too call. tough. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. this can't be yeah, done. Yeah. Let's not do it. So they go the next night and they turn around. And I am not a good teammate, right? This guy comes back, Arlo, and I meet him in the planning area. And I'm like, pushed my fingers in his chest. Like, you you know, what the hell, man? You, you were, were you scared? You know, and he's like, dude, I almost died in the mountains. We're lucky to be here. And we're literally shoving each other. Now, Arlo's bigger than me and, you know, a lot stronger. He was a wrestler yeah. and he would essentially crush me. But I am <laughs> pissed off now. But you were like... Yeah, I'm like, we're going to. So anyway, I think I got another 24 hours and they're definitely going to call us off. Right. But it turns out that while we're asleep, you know, during the day, Secretary Rumsfeld called personally to the the TF Dagger uh, planning area. And this major uh, Mark, we'll call him, uh, picks up the phone and he says, uh, you know, you know, hello, Task Force Dagger, you know, planning area. And And like. This is Donald Rumsfeld. You get those teams in tonight or else, you know, click. Okay. The rules of the game have changed. Yeah. But they didn't tell us that. I mean, that's, that's pretty crappy, but. Well, but the cool thing for us is. Now, you know, so now, you know, Arlo is going to go. And the problem is he's going in higher mountains and he needs one of my helicopters to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because he needs the extra lift. What that means is I'm now alone and they don't really want me to fly by myself me and my crew and uh, they give me the daps the armed blackhawks but they are not equipped quite like i am nor can they actually go into the mountains that i'm about to go into so they'll follow me as far as they can it's almost like world war ii you know the the fighters following the bombers until they you know really need them and they got to hang out right and so then they come out and oh there's two of the 200 left you know and that's what these guys were going to do and uh so we, we take off, and the only caveat here is that I have to be 30 minutes after Fahim gets his guys. Right? So Fahim gets his Green Berets. He's satisfied that he's the first, and I can touch down for General Dosan with the horse soldiers. Right? They're not known that at the time. It's 595. But uh, So we take off. It's a beautiful night. And I'm walking out there. They're towing my aircraft out uh, to the takeoff area, looking up at the sky. The stars are out. It's beautiful super cold and uh what i don't realize the weather forecast is for a beautiful night what they didn't know at the time was that there was a sandstorm just on the other side of the river into afghanistan that was several thousand feet thick and you couldn't see more than about an eighth of a mile so we excuse me we take off out of k2 i've got my daps in tow Mm -hmm. and uh we hit our first tanker so we're doing air refueling uh, from an air force uh, mc-130 papa uh, we got our gas, we break off, we head into Afghanistan. The daps are like on my, you know, five o'clock and eight o'clock position, you know, and we're just flying along and everything's good till we cross the border. And all of a sudden you can't see. It's like driving in the worst fog you've ever been in, you know, on a, on a road, right? But you're flying. But we're flying. <laughs> so, and so here's the thing. So the, the, the daps, the pilots, you know, they got some cojones. They, they sucked in close. So they could, they were, with the night vision goggles, they could not see the helicopter, but they could see the glow of my two engines, right? So if I increased power, the glow got bigger and they knew to start climbing. If the glow got smaller, it meant I was in a descent and wow. they would descend. And that's what they did. And it's like, that's insane. Yeah, that's but insane. But this is right after 9-11. We're all trying to do this. And uh, eventually they cried on call. They're like, hey, we can't do this. So they turn around. Now it's just my my aircraft. 
And I'm like, they're not going to let me go, you know, by ourselves. But I got the battalion commanders in my jump seat, yeah. right? And he knows about the Rumsfeld yeah. edict, right? So he's like, well, Al, what do you think? Hey, and to like, quote Don Rumsfeld, you go to war with the army that you have, not the army that you want. Yeah. I know that's a bastardization of the quote, but uh, yeah. 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 But so here's the first time we get to use the terrain falling radar ever for mm. real, right? So I said, sorry, I think we just TF, which is terrain falling. And he's like, do it. Like, wow. Hit you the know, button. And you're like, man, I hope this works. <laughs> right. Because and I'll tell you why it's a big deal. Uh, the reason we never got to use it in training, I mean, you could use it um, in good weather conditions, but you couldn't do it when you couldn't see out the window because occasionally the damn thing would just reboot or lock up. Right. And you'd oh, have to awesome. fix it. Right. So imagine your iPhone or your laptop, you know, you got to yeah. hit control, delete, oh, I whatever. I yeah. It. So now, but now you're in the I'm mountains. Also, I'm also, uh, well-informed about military equipment and how effective it was, yeah. you know? Well, this, this thing worked really, you know, so we're flying along and, and my co-pilot is on what we call the queue, right? So it's, it's a little up and down arrow telling you how much power to do and the steering queue. Mm -hmm. And then we've got a radar display and I'm looking at it and everything's good. And we turn our first corner and the radar commands about 10 miles out. And there was a mountain in between that except we didn't plan the route to account for that, right? Because this is something we learned on this mission. Yeah. So I turn the corner and we get what's called a full climb command, meaning the aircraft does not have the performance to clear whatever's ahead, right? And I don't know what it is because it's just outside the display and all you can do is climb like your life depends on it because it does. And, you know, we're just climbing, you slow back to best climb airspeed. The aircraft's just about four or 5,000 foot a minute, which is fast for a helicopter at those altitudes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm scrolling through the maps. You have these digital maps. I'm like looking for a scale that'll tell me what's ahead. And I'm like, ah, there's a mountain a giant right mountain. there. So I gave him a cue to turn him off to the right a little bit. Gets the mountain out of the command quarter. The aircraft descends. We get past it. We resume our thing, right? And no more problems. But now when we get to the destination, you still have to see to land. And where they were going, there was no friendly forces other than there was a CIA team there that mm -hmm. had gone in the night before and they didn't have an IR strobe, right? So normally at night you have the benefit of, you know, a laser pointer or a strobe something. or something to say, this is the location, right? There's nothing. And we, we do break out of the clouds. I've got about 4,000 feet to lose and about a half mile because on the other side of the landing zone is a ZPU 23-4, which is a any aircraft gun with four barrels, 23 millimeter, right? If that gets a beat on me, I'm right. done. Yeah. And then we'll be Swiss cheese and that'll be that. So you have to keep the little hill in it. So we start. And you knew that was there already. Yeah. Yeah. So we start doing these, what we call S turns. Mm -hmm. So we're losing altitude laterally instead of going toward the target. And my co-pilot is fairly new. So I start doing it, except at the very bottom, when it's time to turn to the LZ, it's on his side and I can't see the landing area. I'm like, you know, uh, Jethro, you got the landing area? He's like, yep. I said, you have the controls. And he, I basically screwed him, you know, because typically you you get the landing area and you get lined up and there's little magnetic brakes on the controls mm -hmm. and you can hit the switch and the controls will stay where they are so you can kind of get set up and then you can just fight the springs. And uh, he got it on the ground, but uh, it was scary. But he was not happy with me. He was not happy with me. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I definitely screwed him. But uh, so the dust settles. 
you know, we're surrounded by all these guys in those, you know, Northern Alliance hats, the Pacol, I think they call it, a little flat hat. And they all get AK-47s and they all look mean. And I don't know if they're Taliban or yeah, yeah. because they can switch sides, right? Yeah, they're sure. very, they consider themselves sure. pragmatic in that. Yeah, like, yeah. So I'm like, as long as they end up on the winning side. Yeah. You know? So the, yeah. the team comes off. They're like the Italians in that way. And, and like the Italians, they do a little, you know, a couple of man hugs, you know. And it's like, okay, I guess this is them. The team leader gives me a thumbs up, and we took off, went back, did the same thing on the way home. And then we did that night after night mm. after night. Wow. And we were pushing the aircraft performance so much. And there were two flight leads, me and Arlo. And we snuck off in, in a bunker, and one of the CIA pilots had given us a bottle of Jack Daniels. And we had a couple of snorts, and we're like, what do you think? He's like, I think we'll last maybe another mission. We'll die. I'm like, yeah, I agree. And we did not, and we just kept going, you know. But it was, what are you going to do? Someone's got to do it. Yeah. So it was us. That's wild. Yeah. So talk about, you know, I mean, that is an iconic moment in history. How does it feel to be part of that? Well, it was an honor. And, you know, uh, I did it for about 10 years of combat deployments. And I get asked every once in a while, would you do it again, knowing what you know now? And the answer is yes, I would. Now, the difference is that we always thought we were going to get in and get out, mm -hmm. right? I didn't think, you know, 10 years of combat. I even thought, you know, we could finish up the war before my kids were of age to serve, and both of them did. You know, my youngest son was a crew chief in the 160th and served overseas, and my oldest ended up flying the F-18s and also flew in Afghanistan and Syria and stuff like that. And I thought we had finished it because one of the things, you know, people think bin Laden just disappeared, you know, and then we found him. Oh, look, there he is. Yeah. Uh, the intelligence services always kind of knew about where he was. So you'd go on a deployment and you get briefed, hey, um, if he's here, how would you do that? You know, and you'd get with the ground force and we'd figure out, you know, so every time you went, you kind of knew. Kind of knew roughly where Yeah, they'd be yeah. like, here's where we think he is. And it was always in the same circle. You know, they just had to find the house. And, uh, you know, they, so you always thought you were going to be the guy to do it until you, until it came time to go home. And then you were afraid the guy behind you was going to get, get him. Was going to get him, yeah. Which it turns out the guy I was always afraid of was going to get him, got him. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so, so anyway, you just kept trying so yeah it was an honor to do it when you look back you know you you've obviously like i mean you know 10 years of flying covert missions um is there is there one that stands out as like man i was a part of history mm. well obviously the horse soldiers but uh probably the rescue of marcus luttrell was probably a, a, a good one because um, so we were doing uh, two weeks on, two weeks off of quick reaction force, QRF. And I was augmenting the our third battalion, which was flying an older version of the Chinooks called the MH-47 Delta, right? And I was flying the MH-47 Echoes, which was what we used in the first part of the war with our company from Korea. We had one company in Pacific Command, PACOM, and they were augmenting us. So there were seven uh, Delta models and two Echoes. And the Marines wanted to do Operation Red Wings. 
and they asked the army to help them. Well, well, really, USASOC to help them get in the in the mountains. And they didn't have helicopters that would do that. The Deltas were less capable aircraft, but they were lighter by like two thousand pounds because they had less equipment. Mm. So we decided that it would be best if they took all these Marines in because they could carry a lot more yep. people than I could. I could fly in worse weather, but they could carry more people. And the idea was you were only going to do the mission in good weather anyway because you had to have a stack overhead and an sure. ISR. Sure. So we're going to do a changeover on QRF and because Third Bat's got it right now and I'm doing some other stuff. And uh, they put in a four-man SEAL element, which Marcus was part of, right? Michael Murphy and the other fellows. And they're compromised. And so they asked for exfil, and there's some there's some bit of a story there to why they didn't get exfil right away. It was a communications issue, but you know Michael Murphy gets on his sat phone and says, "Hey, we need exfil right now." So Major Steve Reich, who also was a Major League Baseball player at one time, a uh, good friend of mine, uh, is the commander of B Company Third Battalion, and he's on the QRF, and he's also a West Pointer. Um, they got a nice little thing for him there at the baseball diamond but uh so i'm coming on as qrf right i come into the, the planning area you know you got all these big screen tvs everywhere i get my coffee i sit down I'm like what's going on and i sit down next to the battalion commander i'm like sir what, what's going on oh the uh, the seals have been compromised we're launching the qrf i look at my watch i'm like well technically that's me he goes yeah but major reich was already up they were already dressed they went to do it like, okay you know, so I'm watching with coffee, watching the ISR feed, right? There's a A10 actually looking down mm-hmm. on uh, the, the the one place you could land. We called it HLZ Thresher. It was a, on top of a, about a 12,000 foot ridge line, just a little logging area. And there's nowhere to land. They're going to fast rope in. So I watched the aircraft go in, and then you see a big bloom because this is a, you know, a, it's a FLIR, forward looking infrared, right? So you can see heat. And what it was is an RPG, uh, rocket-propelled grenade hits up in the aft transmission area. The aircraft kind of limps away and then comes apart, and then it comes off screen. So, wow, we just I just watched him get shot down. So I looked at the colonel and said, sir, I can be in the air in like 20 minutes. He's like, go. So off we go. The crew chiefs have the aircraft already ready for us, up to engine start. I literally have to throw my body armor, sit in the seat, buckle the belt, and start the engine. And we're in the air. We've got now our SEALs from our task force, the DevGrew guys. And I am flying about 150 knots, which, you know, with a full Lotus, I got like 20 SEALs on board. Mm. And we're at high altitude. I'm going the most direct route I can. And my mind is racing. What am I going to do when I get there? The only place I can take them is that one spot. And the enemy, what did I just say earlier? You know, yep. the, the enemy, enemy knows, knows I'm coming. No, you're coming. And I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, and uh, I would say, luckily, they diverted us. You know, I'm like, I call on the radio, six minutes out. They're like, nope, divert to JBAD. So we went over to Jalalabad to the headquarters that the SEALs had there so we could come up with a better plan, which was really a good idea, actually. And uh, we end up, you know, slowly bringing forces in. The weather was terrible. And so they sent Rangers and SF guys on foot, you know, to get in there, right? I mean, you got to get in there somehow to get these guys mm-hmm. and maybe this air crew survived. Who knows? And, um, I tell you, this is the toughest, but a week of flying I ever had to do because not only did the enemy know 
where you were coming. And it was only three ways into the valley. Yep. One was cloud shrouded every single day. So really there's two ways in because I've got these Delta models with me. The Echoes can fly through it, but they won't let me go alone. They want me to lead the, the Deltas in there. So we're bringing more and more rangers and seals in to look for survivors or, you know, killed in action. Yep. And uh, you're fighting thunderstorms, you know, and, and the radar doesn't work in the thunderstorm because it sees it as an obstacle. Did, did you have a sense, like when did you have a sense that Latrell was potentially still alive? We had recovered a couple of bodies and we were rehearsing a dignified transfer. So my NCO, my uh, non-commissioned officer, uh, Trey Ponder, uh, was augmenting them. So he was riding along and he was killed on that shoot down. So I was one of his pallbearers and we were practicing, you know, how you would do that. We got the coffins and they're full of water or something like that initially. And while we're practicing, uh, this captain comes out and he's like, Al, we got a survivor. You got to come right now. And so somebody took my place as a pallbearer. We come back. We're in the rescue coordination center. Like, yeah, we got Marcus Luttrell. We got his beacon location and his isoprep. So every special operator that's overseas has a little uh, Tyvek uh, card, you know, with little messages of, you know, help this man and we'll reward you, right? And it has a number, a little serial number, right? So everybody has this number. And the Joint Personnel Recovery Center knows who that is. So he gave that number to, I don't remember the guy's name, Ghul Muhammad or something, Ghul Badin or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he walks into a Marine Corps base nearby, about 10 clicks, says that. We've seen his embitter beacon at the location he's at. All right, this has got to be him, you know. So they send uh, an SF ODA, uh, his Green Berets, and some Afghans to secure him, right? So they kind of secured the perimeter while we planned the rescue. And this was probably the, I would say this is the best mission I ever planned uh, because it involved uh, pre-assault fires, deception fires, coordination with the Air Force, uh, rescue helicopter. So the, um, it, it was kind of interesting. When they found out where he was, they were going to let the HH-60s, that's a Black Hawk from the Air Force, go pick him up. And I looked at it and I said, there's no way they've got the performance to do that and the tiered fields are big enough for a Chinook. I can land right there. And the, I was a little more animated than that. Yeah. I was like, no, no way these guys <laughs> are doing that, right? These are our guys. And they'll yeah. crash because they, they don't have the yeah. power. Yeah. So the, the head PJ, a guy named Tom, uh, he was smart. He said, uh, all right, Al, you can go get him. But we've got about a 20-minute window in between storms. So you get to go one in once that night, and we still have people missing, and we still need to bring rangers in to look for bodies. And you know the Blackhawk can't do that. And I was like, all right, there's no there's no choice to make here. Okay, he can go get them. I said, but I'm planning the mission. And the Air Force guy's like, yeah, go for it, right? Because I'm familiar with the area. They haven't yep. been in there yet. Yep. So they stripped that baby down. There was nothing, no guns, no ammo, no rescue equipment. It was all they could do. So it would have enough power to land yep. in that. Yep. In that and so we court, I sat down with the A-10s and the AC-130, which is something I'd never actually done before. You know, I told them what I wanted. In this case, you know, I laid up my map. I was like, here's the desired effects I want. You tell me how you're going to do this, right? So we knew that, you know, we had to come in a certain way and uh, kind of planned for, you know, hitting what I considered key terrain. 
this is where I think bad guys would likely hide. I want to hit those with whatever you want, right? And the AC-130 used, I think, 40 millimeter. You just pepper these areas. And that way, if they're covered with canvas, you know, because you can hide from, you know, heat signature with a little mm -hmm. sand on a canvas top. And uh, so they hit that. And then the 60 would come in. And then just before he came in to the, the actual open area, they shifted to this big ridge line. They started dropping 500 pounders. I said, I want the biggest, nastiest explosion. I want people to go, what the hell is that? Right? And a 60 comes in, and then you come back again. So you shift fires back. And then on the way out, you do the same thing. And then as they come out, I'm coming in with the uh, the rangers and put them at the top of the hill and come out. And it was it was really a piece of artwork. That's, that's awesome. You know, Latrell talks about it. You're smiling about it. I am right smiling. Now. I've got goosebumps. You know, Latrell talks about it in his book. He's like, oh, it's amazing. You know, these big explosions everywhere. It's like, <laughs> yeah. And I did that. <laughs> it's cool. That, that's incredible. People yeah. don't, you know, I, I think people that are not in the military don't realize how much thought goes into some of these things because the it is easy to think about, you know, the bad guys as being stupid. Yeah. And in fact, it's quite the opposite, yeah. you know, and and the longer wars go on, the more people learn and the smarter they get and tactics change. And so, you know, like you, you, yeah, you got to learn. I mean, you got to you got to evolve, you know, and the you know, the one thing that I would say, you know, having been shot down in Anaconda in 2000, March of 2002 was I was never effectively engaged again without intending to be. So that caught me by surprise, right? Bad on me. I did get shot up a couple of other times, but I knew I would. But you knew you were going. It was like, it. okay, we're going to the X. It's a hot infill or X fill. Yep. We're going to take some heat, but I know it. I was, and I would, you know, we rescued a bunch of Rangers that had been left on on objective, and we came in hot X fill, and uh, it was kind of cool. We actually they knew what time we were coming, they knew which way we were coming from, and yet we caught them by surprise anyway. It was night, it was windy, you know, dark, no moon. And we come in there in a firefight. And we come in and the miniguns just start opening up as we enter the dust cloud. No, that'll catch your attention. Uh, you know, the, the minigun doesn't go, you know, da, 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 da. it goes, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah and you can't talk in the aircraft when that's happening. And a dust landing is a very crew coordinated event. You know, usually the crew chief helps you. And we come in and, the, you know, the, the bad guys, they were Chechens. So these weren't even Taliban. They were some nasty folks. Mm -hmm. And they turned their guns on us, you know, as the Rangers are starting to collapse to the aircraft. And the gun just, you know, opens up again and again and again and again. And I'm just sitting there with my arms at my side. And, and what I would do is because you've got a, uh, a chicken plate, right? You've got a Kevlar plate right here. Uh, but it, it's not big enough. You know, it's like the size of this book. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was always afraid of a bullet coming in from the side. Yep. So I would put my arms at my side while I waited for the guys to load so that if a bullet hit me from the side, maybe may the arm may bone. Maybe it bounces off. Yeah, your, keep it from rattling around on my chest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, luckily I didn't get hit. The aircraft took a lot of hits. But uh, I learned, yeah. you yeah. know, from Anaconda. And, and we did some things, some deception there. And, of course, we had to use overwhelming force to keep them at bay, you know, while the Rangers got on board. But uh, So yeah. going back to Marcus, um, you know, that – Obviously, at the time, it was a important mission, but it had as it has become an iconic mission. Um, what was it like to get to get somebody out? Oh, it know, feels good after after that situation. It feels good, you know. the 
the most rewarding missions aren't even, yeah, I'm getting a little choked up here. Um, you know, killing bad guys, taking them off the field is, feels good, right? It just does. But, yeah, can we stop just a second here? Sure. It's kind of, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay. Okay. All right. So, you know, taking bad guys off the field, like I said, is, it feels good. They're not killing people anymore. But rescuing somebody that needs, you know, a Kazavak, you know, get some guy, you know, his, uh, you know, his kids may not have a father. Get them home safe. It feels really good. And um, you, you guys do the Lord's work. I mean, mm. like it. Well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, yeah, I think Kazavak, Kazavak's my favorite, you know, in that it sucks that somebody has to get hurt, but it feels good, you know, to get people. Did you, were you able to interact with Marcus at that time or? No, I've never actually met him. You've never met him? No. I reached out a couple of times, but I'm, I'm sure there's a gatekeeper, you know, that, uh, you know. So I'll, I'll tell you, so, you know, he's, um, so I first... <laughs> Very random, like, you know, very mm. random stuff. The first time I met Marcus was on the back of a, essentially a school bus. And uh, at the time, uh, um, a couple of guys that are friends of mine, uh, Matt Burden and, and Jim Hansen, they used to run a, a website called Black Five, right? Back in the day, it was like, it was the mill blog, you mm. know, when mill blog, this is before the internet, before like Facebook and before, yeah. you know, mill blogs were kind of the thing. And, and, um, they had what they called the heroes tour. Mm -hmm. Now, Marcus was not a household name. Mm -hmm. Uh, the book had not come out yet. It was yeah. about to come out. And, um, and so it was like a group of guys and they were, they were trying to like educate people on the war mm -hmm. and Mark, Marcus and I are in the back of this bus drinking like Coors Lights or something. And he's yeah. just like, I had, I didn't know who he was like exactly. And you know, he's kind of telling me his story and, and like, he wasn't in a good place at that time. So yeah. that was like the first time I met him. Um, and then, uh, we met again at, I can't remember. It was, it was a charity event, but then, you know, so we kind of like were acquainted Mm -hmm. And then when we made the movie Range 15, mm -hmm. um, we're like, man, it'd be really cool to have Marcus Luttrell in this. Because we were trying to kind of make it a who's who yeah. of, of military personalities. And so it was like, you know, reached out to him and he was like, I'll do it on one condition. And we're like, all right, like we're waiting for this weird condition. And he's like, I want to die first. I want the lone survivor to be the first casualty. And... Uh, and so that's what we did. But then we decided we couldn't just kill him. So he comes back. Yeah. But, but, um, that guy shows up on set, massive, positive energy, like mm. helping people out. I'm uh, glad to hear that. Bought, uh, bought everybody hot dogs. Cause we ended up going late that night. Yeah. So went out and like, just bought everyone like, I mean, like bought like a hundred hot dogs and, and brought them to the crew mm. and um, profoundly thankful for you guys, mm. like profoundly thankful. And uh, um, he, 
I've seen him consistently since then. I've, I've, I've been to a number of events where he has kind of come to charity events and helped out recently with Warrior Rising, mm-hmm. uh, profoundly committed to paying the debt mm-hmm. to you guys. So you guys should meet. I will, I will see if I can't make that connection. But he um, talks about the guys that rescue him. He always he, chokes up. He chokes up. Time. Yeah, he starts he starts yeah. crying every time. Um, well, the yeah. Air Force got you know funny story to bring the mood back up. Yeah. So um, it's okay. The mood can be down. It's all <laughs> right. Hey, you know, it's all right. I, you know, I wanted to be funny, Alan. Not uh, depressing. <laughs> but um, your wife. She said, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to be funny, Alan." No. So um, so we have this. We start doing the New York Air Show. Right, which is in Orange County, New York. It was yep. supposed to be in Coney Island, and uh, Mayor De Blasio didn't want to pay the overtime for the first responders. Right, De Blasio. so so this is sixty. I just like to say names that sound evil. It does, De Blasio. right? It's like an evil genius. Yeah, one million dollars. <laughs> but um, so they decide they have, this is sixty-one days from the show. Right, yeah. you one, tip, one ranger school away from the show. Typically, it takes a year. <laughs> right, so they the promoter reaches out, finds my county executive. I'm flying for West Point at the time. And uh, they decide they're going to do it at Stewart Airport, mm-hmm. which is uh, the 105th Air National Guard base is there. 2nd Aviation for West Point is there, and they have commercial carriers. Do so they cancel at 60, I, they say 60 days before the show? Yeah. Yeah, so, they, uh, so the county executive says, hey, I want to do this. So he writes an email to General Caslin, who is the soup of uh, West Point. Yeah. And he's like, we really need your help. We can't do this without you. And so he CCs he's, me. He's a good man. So Caslin CCs me, and he's like, uh, talk to Chief Mack. He'll hook you up with whatever you need. Commander's intent. Yep. There you go. And mission. So uh, kind of exec comes to the the hangar and like, hey, first thing we need is a press conference. So I, there's my ramp, right? It's huge, right? This used to be a battalion hangar. Now it's two Lakotas and two fixed wing and the state police. So they bring over a C-17, a C-130, and my little, I'm like, my Lakota has to be in there, right? So a little helicopter in the middle. Yeah. And uh, we get with the picture and... Um, I helped make it happen, right? Which is how I ended up with the job that I have now for the county executive is he liked, when I retired, he's like, hey, I really like how you did business. And he's a naval reservist, good guy. And uh, so I started working for him. But we make the air show happen. And I even took the Raptor team in a Lakota for a ride around the city, you know? And I took them down around Coney Island and say, look, the New York air show is actually over Coney Island with a Raptor team in a Lakota, you know? But, uh, yeah. Yeah, where I was going with that. <laughs> now, I'll, the mood up. yeah, we're, oh, that's we're, right. We're, we're, that's we're trying, right. You were trying to bring the mood up. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'll tell you this now. All the tapping on the table. Yeah, our editors are gonna go oh. nuts. Like, Research, part of me okay. is giggling, but like now, but now I am gonna tell you. Like, I'll be good because like you know one or two here and there is okay, yeah. but when you're like this, she's gonna have to try to get all of those out of the audio. Teresa, oh. I tried to stop them. You deserve this, Teresa. Oh, no. You deserve this. <laughs> or now that you know it, maybe you let it go. Here's how. You know, one of the things I would do uh, flying. Did you ever see the movie Fury? Yes. With the tank, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the gunner, who's uh, Le, Sheila LaBeouf, right? So while they're trying to take out that tiger tank, you know, he's got to wait till the tank gets in the right position. Yep. And the whole time his heel is just tapping on the floor that's me and when i would when i'd be about 10 minutes out you know i'd, I'd announce to the the customers of that guy 10 minutes and then you hear that repeated in the back and you just get the goosebumps on my heel would just start tapping and i'd start pulling on my gloves trying to make sure they were tight enough 
And now, how uh, often did you play Credence as you were as you were coming into Target? Uh, <laughs> never. You know, in our song, we were ACDC because uh, for a oh, long time good. we had yeah. the call sign Thunder. So you were thunderstruck. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Thunder. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. That was. I mean, that was the the video of the '90s. Do you remember the Thunderstruck Army yeah. Moto video? Yeah. Had the tank like jumping over the dune or whatever, oh, yeah. which then we then found out the tank got like absolutely destroyed, but it still looked cool oh, in yeah. that picture. Yeah. I think yeah. I know the guy that was in that. He was actually, uh, he was a sergeant at the time, ended up a, a pilot. Well, I mean, it looked awesome, but, you know, having, having spent time in uh, Bradley's, that had to have hurt. <laughs> There's, yeah. there's nothing soft in any of the, you know, it's like the pad on your seat is like that thin and that's the only pad. Everything else is just metal. So that must've been like, Oh yeah. I can't even imagine. That must've been brutal. <laughs> anyway. Um, so horse soldiers saving Marcus Luttrell. Those are some pretty big, those are some pretty big moments. Hmm. You stayed in for 35 years. Yeah. That is a lot of years to be in uniform. Why did you stay in that long? Well, number one, I really enjoyed it, you know, and um, as you know, as you increase in rank and time in the military, your life gets easier, right? It, it becomes more of a normal, you live in a house, you have a family, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the pay gets better. And I really enjoyed being a flight lead in the 160th, you know, and the only reason I left is I had the fortunate situation my wife at the time had an opioid addiction uh, prescription meds and she died of an overdose and the only reason I left the 160th was I needed a change of venue and uh, the West Point flight detachment turned out to be my landing spot which was great because the cadets essentially recharged me you know the positive energy mm -hmm. you know the smiles you know they taught me how to skydive oh, that's know. cool I got to jump out of my own helicopter onto the plane at West Point you know, once I got 50 jumps. That's cool. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And then the only reason I got out of the Army was because the Army decided that, you know, three years was enough at West Point. Time to go back to the community, meaning back to special operations. Yep. And I had just been remarried to a woman from New York. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to take a woman who's never left New York, drop her in Fayetteville, <laughs> and then go TDY. Why not? Uh, and my Why sons not? talked me out of like, it. Like, huh? Like Westchester <laughs> County or Fayetteville. Yeah. I, and I don't know if you were in Westchester, but you were close to Westchester. No, it's cl it's just north of there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Putnam, yeah. But yeah. 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 That's, I mean, Fayetteville yeah. is. is uh, and you know, the funny thing with her, and, you know, things connect is that she lost her stepbrother in the North Tower. Oh, wow. And, you know, we were connecting and we were trying to get to know each other in that courting phase, right? Yep. And uh, she's like, so where were you on 9 11? I'm like, well, you know. I did this and this and this and this. <laughs> I was with the horse. So. I was like, I was America's response. You know, and she's like, what is that? Right. And I had to tell her about it. And none of her family or friends knew anything about. How is that it. possible? I don't, I don't know. It just didn't. Uh... Before the movie, nobody knew. Really? I mean, yeah, like. Yeah, Nick, before the movie, nobody knew that. No. Nobody well, maybe, maybe outside the millet. Maybe uh, no one. Because yeah, because yeah. the pictures of those guys. So I, re I remember we we actually made like. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I remember those guys reaching out, you know, when I, like when we, we posted about them, uh, I don't know, 2008 or something. And they had a liquor or something. Well, they do now. Now it's, it's everywhere now. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Horse yeah. soldier bourbon. It's good. Yeah. It's good bourbon. 
Yeah, and you know that I'm like I would say like uh, it's, yeah, I know you would. You know, because I'm, you know, I'm uh, I'm precious with with bourbon, you know, and yeah. it's good bourbon. It really is. Yeah, they're good guys. They're, I'm doing a fundraiser with them uh, in September. Uh, they got their fir- their interpreter out uh, just recently, so awesome. they've got a you know a fundraiser for for that. You That's know, support great. that family. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. So I know you like that kind of stuff, right? I do. I do like that kind of stuff. Um, do you want to talk about opioids? Is that a thing you want to talk about, or do you want to? Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, you know, one of the things that that helped me through that was a group called Al-Anon, right? So it's a companion group to AA, right? So mm-hmm. you have the alcoholics, addicts, whatever, and their family members. And the one thing that that sucks about being a family member of an alcoholic or an addict is that you feel like you can fix them, but you can't, right? And that just drives you nuts. And that's one of the things Especially that- Especially for a guy like you. I need Especially, control. Yeah. You know, that's why I was a flight yeah. lead. You know, they, yeah. they would tell us, when I first became a flight lead, a very senior flight lead told me, he says, if you have an opportunity, never give up lead. Even if there's another flight lead in the formation, never give up lead because you won't be happy with the way they're doing it, right? Remember I said everybody's a little bit different. Well. So I need control. And, oh, I, I get it. And what I found overseas is that I felt, and I still feel this way, uh, my level of PTSD, if you will, I don't really feel like I have anybody do in that when I don't have control and somebody could get hurt, like I really, I get really antsy. Yeah. And uh, so it was bad, you know, as, as she spiraled out of control, it just got worse and worse and worse. And we, you know, I was a classic enabler, but the folks in Al-Anon helped me see you know, I had to fix myself first, and then maybe they could fix or at least set the conditions for her to, to get better. How do you how do you feel about like, you know, there's a lot of and I'm not an expert in this. So I always I always hesitate when I'm not expert to jump into a situation. But there is a lot of evidence that, you know, drug companies very much knew that there was a significant threat oh, yeah. of addiction and yet you know pushed hard to use these drugs instead of other drugs that have been used for years right. and now we're sitting on you know i mean a true crisis you know yeah. and, and people you know like your wife that um you know through no fault of their own got exposed to these things and then yeah you just couldn't get away from it get away from it yeah i mean like and the worst part is you know the she had to go to pain clinics right because they could give you the quantity that you really need to keep the pain down and as you methadone was her medicine Mm -hmm. excuse me and as time went by she needed more and more and more to do the thing right and when that didn't do it she then added alcohol so she had this vodka, you know, and methadone. And then she even had fentanyl patches at one point, you know. Wow. And it just, she went to rehab a couple of times. Twice it took for about a month. And I thought, you know, we'd rounded the corner. And that's when she would tell me all the stuff she'd been doing. You know, it's like, yeah, here's how I did this. And here's how I've been hiding this. And it's like, wow. So that's how I know. Otherwise, I've never known what she was doing. Do you, have you put any thought like you know what what do you think we should be doing with opioids like 
you know, how should we be approaching it? Should they be used? Should they be used only under extremely limited conditions? Like, because, uh, you know, people that haven't seen it think it's just willpower. And I'm not, I'm not saying it, it isn't, but there is a physical addiction that oh, is, yeah. and some people are, you know, are, are more prone to being addicted yeah. than other. Some people like, like my mom is, uh, you know, she's so fearful of these things that when she had, she had double knee replacement, she took like pills for a day and was right. like, I'm just going to weather the pain now yeah. because she like, you know, she's, she's was so fearful right. of that. She's also, you know, built a certain way, but then other people like, you know, it doesn't take much and then they cannot, can't break it. And, yeah. and like, it almost seems like we kind of throw our hands up and like, Oh, it's on them. But clearly everyone knows that this is a significant risk. Well, I think that's the thing is the awareness, right? Because back when she was, was doing this, the doctors were still prescribing, you know, pain pills. Yeah. Like, like their theory not, was no pain, not managing pain. It was like no pain. Yeah. Well, in order to do that, you know, you really got to put somebody down yeah. Yeah. and you know, that's the kind of thing had I, you know, joined Al-Anon sooner, you know, cause I knew this was going this way, you know, and I just thought we could fix it. And it wasn't until I got with this group of people who were in similar circumstances that I realized, you know, maybe if this was a couple of years earlier, we might've been able to do something, but I don't know, you know, we just, uh, do you think we should use them? Yeah. There's, there's a, there's gotta be a time for it. But so she was using it for chronic pain. Right. Not just, you know, an injury or a surgery. She had, you know, uh, osteoarthritis in her back mm. and her hip. And I mean, which is like miserable, that. which is miserable. Well, she had, you know, Vioxx actually was was a non-narcotic that she was using. And that was keeping it, you know, under control. And I talk about in the book that that's the mark on the calendar where everything went to hell because they took Vioxx off the market and she had nothing else would touch the pain. So she had to go with narcotics. And, and that, and that, that was, was it. That was the beginning of the end. How do you, you know, you have been through, you know, both in your personal life and your professional life, significant trauma, whether you're talking about, you know, getting shot down, watching people in terrible situations, Casavac mm -hmm. that didn't go the right way. How do you maintain, because you're a, you're a very positive, steadfast kind of person. How do you maintain that? I don't know. I'm built that way. I try to surround myself with people who are like-minded and, and, you know, I try to have fun, you know, uh, I have a wonderful wife. Um, you know, I, a coin that I made when I, when I put the book out and it's got an aircraft attitude indicator on the front of the coin. I don't want to brag or anything, but I received <laughs> one of those coins right before the show. In fact, here it is. There you go. By the way, there's a little, Terrain falling radar cue on the edge of that there. But attitude is everything, is the way I view it. And um, try to surround myself with people that have a good attitude. And I've been lucky enough to do that. You know, if somebody's negative, if I can't bring them up, you know, maybe distance myself a little bit. That's why we put Quigley at the end of the table. <laughs> uh, we can work on that attitude. It'll be all right. <laughs> there is none. <laughs> there is no what? No attitude. 
No one believes. Well, you gotta have a good. No one believes you. If you were if you were a wooden puppet, your nose would be growing right now, madam. That's it. Pinocchio as a motivational speaker. I see potential in you. So, what advice would you give for somebody that is that wants to be like you when they grow up? You know, they want to they want to become a pilot. They want to you know they they dream of being a night stalker. Mm. How well, would you do that? I get that all the time. So, actually, the two West Point cadets that I first met when on my assignment up there uh, on the skydiving team both fly MH 47s for the one sixtieth. Oh wow! And uh, go you. So I'm very proud of them. Yeah. Um, but. The advice I give anybody, right, and I get a lot of questions, you know, hey, my kid wants to join the military, you know, what do you suggest? And I'm like, okay, first of all, do they have something they want? Mm-hmm. No, they just want to join the military. All right, so there's two schools of thought for me. One is uh, get a skill, get your college money, and get out, right? You know, be a plumber, be a mechanic, whatever, and then go to college and get out. Or... Jump out of airplanes with your hair on fire, do it up, Yep. get your college money, and get out, right? Either way, the intention is do whatever you're going to do and get out. Now, whether, you know. You, you did not follow that rule, <laughs> sir. Just no, so you know. but, but like <laughs> most people who stay in at least 20 years, what happens? You meet a woman, a spouse, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a kid. All right, I'm getting out. Guess what comes next? Another kid. Right. And those medical benefits and the pay is good. There's stability. Mm-hmm. Before you know it, you know, you're past, you know, 12. Yeah, but I don't believe you when you say that's why you stayed in. I don't believe you at all. <laughs> Not even a little bit. No, I just enjoyed it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I really like flying. And uh, actually, at nine years, so I was an uh, aircraft mechanic in Germany. Mm-hmm. And what I did is I decided that I would put in for flight school. And if I got selected, I'd stay in. And if not, I would get out. And just work for Boeing or Augusta or something like that, working yep. on helicopters. I got accepted, and of course, there it went. The rest is history. Yeah. And then you you spent a quigley and a half <laughs> serving, serving in the military. Yeah, no, I really liked it. That's yeah. good. I really, you know what I, I get asked all the time, do I miss flying? And the answer is not really. Do you uh, fly at all? No. No, I don't. Uh, you have no. Like, I was telling in Hollywood. The problem with it is you got to keep up with the regulations, and you know, it's it's tough. And, and, yeah, and it's, it's tough it's, having a real job and doing that. Unless that so was that's the job. not an itch that you need to scratch anymore. No, it, like I renewed my skydiving license, although I didn't do it this summer because yep. I haven't had the opportunity. We're drone pilots. We are drone <laughs> drone operators. It's just yeah. crazy to me. Like, I mean, you're one of the best pilots on planet Earth in a in a rotary wing aircraft well, probably the best but possibly the best possibly <laughs> yeah. the best possibly we might be right now talking to the best pilot on planet earth um well only if i grew the mustache back so we we yeah. recently had uh, jack mccain on and uh, we have to have him on again because we had uh, some technical difficulties but um he also so he didn't he did not claim that he was the best pilot on earth but he did he did uh uh, continue to claim many times that rotary pilots are far and and above any other pilots, and uh, that you're a different breed. So, uh, yeah. so that claim was made yeah. four but, or five times. But regardless of that, I don't necessarily miss the flying. Although once in a while, I'll drive across the George Washington Bridge just north of uh, New York City. It'll be a beautiful day. You can look up and down the Hudson, and 
I think oh, I used to fly right across the top of this bridge, mm. and I kind of miss it. You know? Do you think you'll fly again? Nah, probably not. Yeah. That's wild. To but me. you know what I miss? That's I miss wild. I like, miss the people. I think it bothers me more than it <laughs> bothers you. I'm like, man. If you, I tell you what, you know, when I when I met you at the book signing with Tim Kennedy yep. down in Jersey, yep. you know, uh, Tim told me he he was taking flying lessons. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I got like uh, you know 25 hours or whatever. Yeah. He's like, oh, that's cool. I got like 7,000. <laughs> you know. When you, when I remember you, that. When you get up, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, his friend, well, our, my friend as well, uh, Shane Steiner. He was a country music star. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, now he does, you know, real estate and, you know, rich guy stuff. Mm -hmm. But he loves flying. So he owns, I want to say, four helicopters. Wow. And so, you know, so like whenever I visit Tim, like if we're going to the gym and Shane is involved, Shane doesn't really believe in driving anymore. So, you know, he will fly, you know, he'll fly over land in tim's backyard That's we get awesome. on we fly to the gym and the gym is um uh we we work out at roca in austin so they're you know if you know that they do sunglasses and and some apparel yeah. and they have a landing pad so it's like they're in tim and shane their entire life basically revolves around places where you can land a helicopter so oh, it's, like, awesome. it's like it's Hey, you know, let's go eat at the Salt Lick. Like, why are we? I mean, it's phenomenal barbecue, but why are we going there? Because they can land a helicopter. Nice, there. nice. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a different world, but no, I'll tell you, fun. you know, when I was at West Point, you know, I would fly over from Stewart to the plane, yeah, uh, by myself for command and staff meetings here yep. there every Tuesday, you know, and yeah. there's no parking on West Point, yeah. So, I, my boss would say. Oh, why are you taking a helicopter over here? It's like, because there's no parking, you know? And I got to fly single pilot anyway, so I have to practice. So I'd fly over. I'd land next to Eisenhower, the statue yeah. on there. Yeah, yeah. And the cadets, they would walk by like there's no helicopter, you know? Yeah. It's like, this is normal, you know? I'd yeah. get out, lock the door, beep, beep. Yeah, it's, a, it's a weird place. It's a weird place that you never really recover from. I bet. <laughs> well, luckily, I didn't have to attend it. I just yeah, got to. You, you just got to teach people. Yeah. 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 That was no, that fun. That's amazing. Have you always been a writer? I mean, have you, did you always feel this burning need to write? Is that how the book came about? No, I always, I'm a storyteller, you know. Uh, the only reason I actually. You stole my line. <laughs> the only reason I wrote the book was because, uh, well, um, I went back to school to finish my degree. And, of course, I'd write a lot of papers. And I kind of, now I realized I could write a longer, you know, yeah. comprehensive work. And then I was interviewed by uh, Jim DeFelice, he wrote American Sniper. And he was writing a book with the horse soldiers called Swords of Lightning that they've since put out. And he came to my work and he interviewed me. And when we were done, he's like, Al, you should write a book. You know, you got some good stories and yeah. you tell a good story. And I'm like, oh, you know, the, the community would hate me. You know, there's always that fear that, you know, uh, you know, like, like Rob O'Neill and Mark Allen and stuff, you know, everybody's like, oh, they're telling the stories. But uh, when 12 Strong came out and we were at the premiere, he, uh, we're drinking horse soldier bourbon at the after party. And uh, he goes, Al, you got to write a book. And I'm like, ah, Jim, I can't. I don't know how to write a book. He goes, I'll help you. You know what? Your book, though, is, I mean, don't get me wrong. The community definitely eats its own all the time. As soon as somebody gets any fame, at least 30% of people hate that person just because mm -hmm. of that. So, like, I, I'm not saying that that isn't a threat but um 
you know, this is not an I love me book. Yeah. This is a book about. And I have got a lot of support. The regiment's been great. I've yeah. got, you know, yeah. some, a lot of the generals. And you're a good writer, booked. you know, like you. when we met and you were like, yeah, I'm writing this book. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, you know. Um, but, uh, but you know, it, it's a it's a really powerful book. You know, you did a great job. So Thank congratulations. You. I appreciate you know, that. Not only on the book, but on your success with it. And, um, you know, word on the street is that there's a second book coming. There <laughs> is. I signed a contract for a second one. I'm outlining it now. Yeah. So, and, you know, did you ever anticipate, you know, first of all, it's a monumental task to write a book. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you do two in a row. Now, I mean, now you're like you're an author. Like you're yeah. a professional writer. <laughs> I like, like you it. Know? You know, if the second one doesn't suck. Yeah, yeah. Even if it does suck, like it you won't. Know? We try not to suck. <laughs> yeah. So that is our. And if it doesn't we will work, sue. <laughs> I'm gonna hit the table, <laughs> and if, Teresa. And if it doesn't work, we try again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. You have yeah. to like a guy that's obviously. <laughs> hey, somebody has to, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, me and my friends, my two friends, we, we have a hey. little watching party. Hey, that's two more <laughs> friends than I have. Hollywood yeah. doesn't even like me. I tell you, I, I had an opportunity, you know, obviously talking to you at the beginning about some of the, the writer stuff. Uh, there's a gentleman named Don Bentley. He writes under the Tom Clancy name. He just picked up uh, Mitch Rabb. And uh, he has his own book as well. He was an Apache pilot at one time. Mm. And he and I, he was actually the Apaches chasing uh, Turbine 3-3 to rescue, you know, Luttrell and the guys in the, when they originally got shot down. And so he and I hooked up and he uh, he hooked me up with Jack Carr. So he he's, and I went great, on. He's a great guy. Super guy. But in the. Did you do his podcast? I did. Yeah. With uh, Don Bentley. So so Don's the headliner. You know, he he's promoting his book. And then. He bows out elegantly and leaves me for another hour to talk with Jack, which oh, was a lot awesome. of fun. That's but awesome. what was really cool about it was it was like sitting through a master class. You know, to talk to these guys talking about, you know, their writing process, the publishing process, their editors, the marketing. And then Don and I actually went out to the National Veterans Museum in Ohio. Uh, it was started by John Glenn. And we did a panel out there. And same thing. He Once again, he gave me all these tips and you know here's what you want to do in marketing and uh, the publisher won't do this and you know it's just a lot of fun yeah you know yeah i um i'm always impressed with jack's work because he's there are people that write and there are people that do impeccable research and then write and so you know when you write fiction and i i like I've got like two half books. Fiction is very hard, mm-hmm. right? It's very hard. When you write fiction, um, it's very easy to dream things up. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to think of the characters and, and it's very easy to, to write big scenes, but to connect it all mm-hmm. where you the characters are believable throughout and they are true to themselves, but more importantly with him, is the research necessary to mm. understand, even, even if you disagree with his conclusions, the research necessary to understand the major geopolitical players mm. for his books, because they are 
in depth, you know, yeah. and, and he goes into topics like artificial intelligence. Right. He goes, you know, the China, Russia, um, you know, Serbia, like this is real research. Hey, you know, this is real knowledge. What's fun with him is, uh, you know, I was telling him on the podcast that I didn't grind any axes with this book. You know, I've obviously had people I could have dimed out, and, yeah. you know, bad leaders or, you know, whatever, or peers that we may have fought. I didn't do that. I decided to take the high road. As a matter of fact, it was kind of funny when I narrated the audio book uh, available on audible.com. Uh, I hit certain points in the book and I was like, oh, I could have sworn I took it a little harder on this guy, you know. But I told Jack that. And he's like, oh, I do it all the time. He goes, I can grind an axe. He says, because they're just fake names, but I can I can make a character. Oh, who, yeah. He pictures the people yeah. that, that did him wrong. I mean, yeah. that's the way you when you write fiction you have to you have to make it real otherwise the characters are wooden you know right but i am with you i'm in the school of unless somebody was truly just atrocious you know like we're all the heroes of our own story and we all see things differently most people i say most Mm -hmm. most people are not trying to fail no. You know, most people wake up every morning saying, like, I'm going to go win today. I'm going to do good today. And, and, and maybe, you know, maybe they're not competent. Maybe they have a bad day. Maybe they think their version of good is different than mine. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I was younger, I was very much a burn the ships kind of guy. Like, mm-hmm. you know, fuck them all. Like, I don't care, you know, but having lived more life, you know, not as much life as you in Hollywood here, but you know, having, having, you realize you're not perfect and that, you know, like, you know, you're the villain in somebody's story too. And and it's, it's a lot easier to kind to be a little more charitable with people. Yeah. And you know, I'd say the, you know, the guys, like you said, everybody's always trying to do the right thing for the most part. And, you know, even though I had differences of opinion on how to do things, mm-hmm. those guys were good. And I was just one of many yeah. guys just like me. Yeah. Right? I mean, I wrote a book, but yeah. there's guys that were still rowing the boat after I left. 100%. You know, and yep. and I do give them some attribution and the acknowledgments and the crew chiefs. Yeah. You know, that's something we didn't talk about at all is those guys are amazing. They're riding in the back. I'm taking them somewhere to a fight, and they're going along for the ride. You know, and they've yep. got a great attitude to boot. You know, and uh, yeah, it's nice when they want to fly with you. Yep. And uh, and and the other thing is, you may have encountered people at a point in their career where they weren't quite good yet. Mm-hmm. You know, where they were learning, and and like your example, like they became a totally different person. Oh yeah. So you know, well, remember I was talking about the guy that played baseball, came to the one sixtieth, throwing like the ninety mile an hour dodgeball. Yep. So he assessed for the one sixtieth right out of flight school. It's unlikely to, to happen just because unless you've got a, a ranger or SEAL background or something like that. But the instructor that evaluated him said that guy will never be in the 160th, right? He just couldn't see the potential in this guy, right? So now this guy goes to Korea. He's going to get some time. They tell him to reassess when he comes back. Well, I go over. I'm the senior pilot in the 160th, and I'm going to do an evaluation uh, for one of the guys. And we bring in conventional forces to give him some complexity in the operation, and one of them is this pilot. And uh, everybody tells me, this guy's great. He, he got assessed, but so-and-so didn't like him, and uh, 
he's not going to reassess. So I went and I flew along with him a couple of times. I was like, all right, the 160th guys in Korea like him. I've been watching him. I like him. So I called a recruiter and I said, hey, I want to do an assessment here in Korea, which has never been done before or after that. So I got permission from all the commands, um, did his assessment during the week, and um, did a board on the phone, and we took him. So he came back from Korea, went there. That guy not only became a flight lead in the 160th, he's now the senior warrant officer in the 160th, you know, because I'd like to say I saw the potential in him and other people as well, but I was the one that pushed it. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it, it is. It's an interesting thing sometimes, and I've I saw this in my brief stint in corporate. I saw it in the military. Somebody makes a mistake, or or isn't quite ready for something one time, and people write that person off forever. Now, don't get me wrong. There are people that are just perpetual fuck ups that don't deserve additional chances, but you know a lot of times like failure becomes a catalyst for significant improvement, you know? And so it's always interesting to me where it's like, you know, we want people to charitably look at us and Mm -hmm. say, Oh, well, Nick just made a mistake. He's a good guy. But like, I might look at you and say, well, he made a mistake. He's a fuck up. Like I always, I always find that interesting. Um, now there's there's the other side of it. You can't be so charitable that you start keeping bad people around, right. which which has been a, a challenge that I have. Is I I give probably too many chances to people because uh, I come from the the old army maxim: there are no bad soldiers, only bad leaders. But actually, there are bad soldiers. They, yeah. they <laughs> no, there, you know, there are. And I've I've learned I've learned that the hard way a few times. But um, but you know like. You, you have to have an environment where people can make mistakes and still achieve great success. And if you right. don't have that, like you're essentially going to start encouraging people that are unwilling to take risk mm-hmm. because one, one screw up and you're done yeah. in a number of organizations. Yeah. So. Yeah. You think of like the, uh, you know, in the tier one units, if you have a negligent discharge, you know, you're gone. Right. But it turns out, really, you're only gone for about a year, and then you can come back, typically, depending on the circumstances. But you're gone, you know, for a period of time, mm-hmm. and it's up to you to try to get back, you know. And, um, you know, I, I have friends who have crashed helicopters or had aerial refueling accidents where they hit, you know, the rotor blades into the drogue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the command saw fit to, you know, retrain if they needed to or, you know, did you learn? something from this and they got to stay and you know improved from that and sometimes, then we, it's un, sometimes it's just unavoidable yeah i mean you, i mean we like, we like to have big, yeah. big egos and think that you know sometimes you get into situations in the air and it's it's just going to happen no matter what you do yeah. i mean hollywood crashed eight planes eight let's start that rumor let's start the rumor that hollywood crashed eight planes <laughs> It's the same thing in, in you know in a bit in business you know you know Nick and Nick likes to say well I'm too lenient but 
Not not usually. I mean, sometimes, but most of the time, you see a fuck up and you let, you know, the person learn from that, and and that's what has to happen. Because like this guy you were talking about, maybe the instructor just didn't like him. Maybe he mm-hmm. said something you know, that the instructor didn't like, and you guys were lost a great asset because you hadn't had the opportunity yeah. for somebody else to put eyes on. Him. Well, you know what's funny is we were after we accepted him, we were out at Damneck doing some dog training, right? So the the dogs, the Belgian Malinois, they have to get accustomed to the aircraft. So you fly out there, you shut down, they walk on and off, then you run up, and then they walk on and off, then you fly, and then they fast rope with them and stuff like that. And this guy who had been the instructor was out there, had been the evaluator before, and he's like, oh, who's that? And he goes, oh, that's Alan. I'm not going to say his name. And uh, he's like, worst guy I ever saw, you know? And he still couldn't see the potential in him. Look, we don't live in medieval times anymore when a light breeze used to riddle a village with pneumonia or stubbing your toe meant they would have to amputate your leg. We live in modern times and we expect modern technology to solve our problems. So let me introduce Intablade. When a patient needs to be intubated, seconds matter. They desperately need oxygen going into their brain and into their system. And the number one thing that occurs when somebody is trying to intubate, even with tools that have cameras, is that there is something blocking the camera so that the the surgeon, the doctor, the EMT cannot see where that tube is going. Enter Intablade. Intablade works with unrivaled efficiency and efficacy. Visit intablade.com for more information so you can see how their self-cleaning camera helps you intubate faster than you ever thought possible. Which was too bad. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know why. I mean, I I still don't know why. Because the guy was a super, super guy. Superman, almost. Yeah. Not quite. But But it it happens all the time. You know, it happens all the time. Like, uh, you know, even, you know, going through the the writing process for scars and stripes like you know some of the people that knew tim when he was 20 nothing still think of him that way right right like oh cockstrong like you know doesn't listen to anybody you know kind of right well but years have gone by he's in his 40s now right you know and and like like all people you know there has been a progression you know he's he's an e8 now that has been you know in group for a long like a lot has happened you know he's not that guy but i did a lot of interviews with people you know and even had one you know prominent guy basically refuse to interview because like he he thought he was going to be villainized in the book and actually Mm -hmm. that the opposite was true you know tim talked about um all of the lessons that he learned by basically getting pummeled by this guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's interesting. Like, you know, people just have a snapshot of one moment in time and don't get me wrong. Like if I meet somebody that's 40 and they're a certain way, I probably, you know, they're probably mm-hmm. not going to change, you know, at the core, right. like twenties, you know, like they're getting, you know, I don't even know who they are yet. They right. don't even, you know, they don't have reps. They don't know anything. They don't know anything. <laughs> um, so, you know. The hat's out. Hat's out. Hat time. All right. All right. Is there, before ready. we pull the hat out, is there anything that you wish I had asked you about that I have not asked you about? No, I think we kind of covered it. Got it? Yeah. All right. 
Razor three. Razor three, a Night Stalker's War. We're about to do the fast question round. This is where it gets wild. Let's see. Uh-oh. Let's see <laughs> if these are the best questions you've ever put in here. Uh probably not. Probably not. All right. <laughs> Low well, expectations, please. Okay. Don't forget the first question. I won't forget the first question. I just like to get one ready, Hollywood. Oh, I see. See, I have one ready. <laughs> that way it's rapid. Yeah. So you already know because you you watch the program, you already yeah. know the first question. What is the toughest animal you think you could defeat in hand-to-hand combat? You know, I did put some thought into this. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm saying a wiener dog, a Dotson. <laughs> but it can't. It can only be one. I can't do two or more because I will laugh so hard I will lose. <laughs> a wiener dog it is. That is the first time anybody has said a wiener dog. <laughs> what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, well, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but uh, I get this thing I do for, for my wife. Uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon fans, anybody? Yep, yep. Right? So when Bugs Bunny was on Broadway. We need 10 seconds of it. Oh, we're the boys of the chorus. We hope you like our show. We know you're rooting for us, but now we have to go. That's it. I love it. (laughs) That might be my favorite yet right there. All right, here we go. What's the most interesting place you've ever been? Afghanistan. What's been your favorite age so far? Early 30s, probably 32. 32. Yep. What's the favorite book that you've read in the last six months, other than your own? <laughs> Scars and Stripes. Yeah! Yeah! Boo. Yeah. <laughs> What's your guilty pleasure or something you're embarrassed to admit that you like? Hmm. What am I embarrassed? Um, I am a movie crier. If the movie is happy... Like super happy, yeah. I will cry. If yeah. the movie is sad, I'm definitely gonna cry. <laughs> and so my wife will sit next to me and we'll watch some sex you know, section of the movie that's obviously emotional. Yeah. And she'll just look at me. <laughs> and <I'm> like, <laughs> <laughs> What's the most ridiculous uh, movie moment? I'm just adding this one that you yeah. that you cried to. Like something uh, where like most people are not crying, but you're like uh, I can't think of anything like that. I don't know. Did you cry during Top Gun Maverick? <laughs> yeah, are you kidding? He had the moment with Rooster and, and Mav. They come together, you yeah. know, but, uh, you know, Goose. Yep. Yeah. All right. That brought, yeah, that brought tears to my eyes. Really? Yeah, I, I'm the same. I cry. I, I cried every movie, every movie. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we go to the theater. I have to have Kleenexes. <laughs> What's one job no one could pay you enough to do? I'd say nobody could pay me enough to be a doctor. Why is that? I, you know, usually it's, we don't ask why. But. Well, uh, I mean, think about it. You don't go to the doctor because you're healthy, right? It's yeah. like, here, Mr. Proctologist, check out my whatever, you know, or yeah. check out these warts or whatever. I just, yeah. You're not, you're not into gr- it. I'm not into gross. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> what would be your weapon of choice in the zombie apocalypse? I like, I have a Mini 14. In 5.56. I really enjoy that rifle. Iron Ruger. sights. Ruger. Yep. I really enjoy it. That's the that's And first. I could take out some zombies with that. I mean, mm. it's the A-team used it. Right? Yeah. I love it. 
No, it's five five six. Yeah, and it's got a, a regular stock, not the folding stock, like you know. Yeah. All right. If you could invite three people to dinner, living or dead, who would you invite? This is our final question. All right. So you've got to bring it home. George Washington. Great one. Abraham Lincoln. And Neil Armstrong, who's obviously not, well, none of us are with us anymore, yeah. but yeah, I think those three. That's pretty strong. Yeah. Who do you think would lead that conversation? George. No, actually, you know what? I think Lincoln would because he was known for his storytelling and amiable attitude. Do you know that both George Washington and Abraham Lincoln were exceptional wrestlers. I did not know that. I know Lincoln was a, like a, he would do demonstrations of strength. Lincoln was allegedly, and you know, obviously this is oral history, so who knows, but allegedly he was 301 in wrestling. 300 wins, one loss. And Washington used to do uh, what is now referred to as catch wrestling which is wrestling with submissions. Hmm. And he was a perfect 17 and 0. Wow. So. Oh, he was a big guy, too. He was a big guy. Yeah. Yeah. He was a big dude. Sir, Mr., I should say, Mr. <laughs> Mac of the Daddy Mac. It has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Guys, if you have not read uh, Razor 03, A Night Stalker's Wars, you should. It's, uh, it's compelling. He's a great writer, which I did not expect because he comes at you with a very stoic outlook. So I thought I was going to get a very stoic book, but there's a lot of emotion. Uh, stellar book. You should read it. And if you're out there listening to this podcast or watching it, you should have this guy on your podcast. Super interesting. And there's a lot more where that came from. Thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Nick. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, you guys. Julia did Welcome. nothing today. If you guys noticed, she's supposed to actually ask questions and stuff, but she just sat there. I was so enthralled. It was so hard. You I know, was just like, wow. She just sat there and did nothing. So, mom, like, I know you think she's great, but, like, not so great today. Was she mom? <laughs>